They want to damage me in any form so that I can no longer represent the hardworking citizens of our country. If I agreed to stay silent, if I stayed home, or if I stayed in my basement, the persecution of Donald Trump would stop immediately. On the morning of August 8th, FBI agents raided the home of former President Donald Trump. He declared that the raid was unnecessary and that it was prosecutorial misconduct, the weaponization of the justice system, and an attack by radical left Democrats who desperately don't want me to run for president in 2024. Following the close to 10-hour raid, the nation searched for answers as to why this was happening. Did Trump commit a crime? Or is this actually misconduct on behalf of the justice system? What exactly were the FBI agents searching for? Are there political motives involved? And what does this raid mean for the future of the United States? I was the first attorney to arrive on behalf of President Trump, and I asked to see the warrant, and initially they wouldn't show it to me. After some discussion, they agreed to show it to me so I could see it. They gave me the copy once everything had concluded. There's not really a whole lot you can do in that situation. They're there, they have a warrant, they're doing what they want, and you kind of just watch. They wouldn't allow me to actually go with them where they were doing the search, so I didn't actually get to oversee the search. They wouldn't let anybody uh, see what they were doing. The search warrant was originally sealed, leaving many people guessing as to the reason for the raid. But it was unsealed on Friday, and it showed the FBI was investigating Trump for potentially violating three U.S. laws, including the Espionage Act. They relate to the concealment, removal, or mutilation of public records, gathering, transmitting, or losing defense information, and the destruction, alteration, or falsification of records in federal investigations. A receipt accompanying the search warrant shows that FBI agents took a set of alleged top-secret-slash-SCI documents, four sets of top-secret documents, three sets of secret documents, and three sets of confidential documents. But Trump says all the documents were declassified before he left office. Number one, it was all declassified. Number two, they didn't need to seize anything, Trump posted. They could have had it any time they wanted without playing politics and breaking into Mar-a-Lago. It was in secured storage, with an additional lock put on as per their request. He was one of the most transparent presidents in American history, and he wanted the documents out for the American public to read. The documents of the FBI, of the DOJ, of other departments and agencies who were in on the fraudulent Russiagate conspiracy, who were in on the fraudulent corruption in the Hillary Clinton email investigation and, and the like. And so President Trump, um, this is winding back the clock, in October of 2020, when he was still president, issued an order declassifying everything related to Russiagate and everything related to the Hillary Clinton email investigation. That's a wide swath of records, government records. That's a presidential order. That's all the president has to do. He's the commander in chief. He has a unilateral authority to classify and declassify documents by just saying so. And that's what he did. Fast forward to the end of his term, sometime in December, January, the president was reviewing documents that he thought were worth the public seeing. And he declassified, and I've said this previously, whole sets of documents then, in the, sitting in the White House, saying I mean, the American public should get these, get these out. 
And what happened was there were some bureaucratic gymnastics at the end of the administration where these documents were sent to the National Archives uh, for some reason and, and never disclosed to the American public. It's kind of outrageous that an order to declassify by the commander in chief when he was president was not followed because some bureaucrats got in the way. So they're sitting at the National Archives. The president names me his representative at the National Archives along with another individual to try to get these documents out. I did engage with the National Archives immediately. And I said, I have an active security clearance. I'll come down there and look at it. If it's a classification issue, why aren't these documents out? Why is the American public not have access to the documents that have been declassified? And I didn't get a good answer. All I got was, you know, another bureaucratic runaround. Oh, we have some, we don't have all, we don't know where the rest of them are. Something went back to DOJ. How do you, you guys are the national archives, the holders of the presidential records and documents, and you don't have a control on it and you're not letting me in. So we're still dealing with that. The timing is interesting that now all of a sudden there's a National Archives issue related to this raid at Mar-a-Lago. If it was related to that, why didn't they just do what we normally do in those situations and call and say, hey, um, we think you have X, we want to review it, can you return it? Search warrant? You could have just issued a subpoena. Do you need 30 armed, swatted up FBI agents to go in there, maybe with counterintelligence? for nine hours? What were you guys doing? What were you guys looking for? What was being hidden? Following the raid on Mar-a-Lago and his news reports about the alleged documents spread, experts began weighing in on what this could mean for Trump and for his potential run for president in 2024. Mark Elias, a Democrat lawyer formerly with Perkins Coie, who is active on election reform, weighed in on the night of August 8th. He wrote on Twitter that the media is missing the really really big reason why the raid today is a potential blockbuster in American politics. Elias cited a U.S. code on classified documents, stating that whoever has these documents and who willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, falsifies, or destroys the same shall be fined under the title of imprisonment not more than three years or both, and shall forfeit his offer and be disqualified from holding any office under the United States. In a later tweet, Elias added, Yes, I recognize the legal challenge that application of this law to a president would garner, since qualifications are set in Constitution. But the idea that a candidate would have to litigate this during a campaign is, in my view, a blockbuster in American politics. Elias' post raised speculation that the raid could prevent Trump from running again for president. Well, you're speaking of conspiracy theorist Mark Elias. Uh, I think that that prediction from that person is uh, not one to be taken too seriously because this is someone who's peddled these conspiracy theories before. But it does show that the goal of the political left isn't to win free and fair elections where people can choose the candidate of their choice. Their goal is to bar people from even being a choice. And again, that is yet another example of what we see in the poorest countries in the world. I mean, think about it. We've got carjackings in broad daylight, raids of political opposition leaders. That's the type of thing you would expect to see in some third world country, not in our United States of America. Donald Trump didn't commit a crime. Now, whether Mark Elias and his buddies at the Department of Justice want to try to indict President Trump, they can try. They're not going to be able to show that Donald Trump actually knew what was down there, or that he had anything to do with the boxes. Code section 18 USC 2071, it says that you have to willfully or knowingly remove or destroy, you know, the whole list of items. Willfully and knowingly means you have to do it intentionally, which means 
any person who does that. That would by default mean that if they want to prosecute Donald Trump for doing that, they would have to prove that Donald Trump personally knew that information was being removed from the White House, that he personally either dictated it or had it removed or that he himself did it. He knew it was there and that he had some uh, malicious intent with it, which there's nothing to indicate that that's true. I also think it's convenient for them that they're drowning this in a national security blanket because they don't want to disclose what they're doing. And so they want to hide it behind the premise that this is, oh, it's, it's a matter of national security and classified documents. Remember, this is the same Clinton political attorney who was very involved in peddling the Russia hoax, which was really the first effort by the FBI and DOJ to smear and destabilize Donald Trump. Uh, unfairly and without due process and without following their own rules. It's pretty simple. The, the quote unquote statute that he has put forth doesn't apply to the office of the president. There's only two things that govern the president, the constitution and constitutional amendments. Federal statute does not supersede those two things. In his August state statement, former president Trump made a shocking comparison to the raid on Mar-a-Lago. He wrote, what is the difference between this and Watergate, where operatives broke into the Democrat National Committee? Here in reverse, Democrats broke into the home of the 45th President of the United States. The Watergate scandal took place in June 1972, when federal agents broke into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters at the Watergate complex in Washington. Later findings revealed involvement with the FBI, CIA, and IRS. It was alleged the efforts were tied to then-President Richard Nixon, who used the raid as an attempt to win an election against the Democrats. The scandal led to impeachment trials against him and eventually to his resignation from office in August 1974. This is the modern-day version of Watergate, except the only difference is it wasn't political operatives breaking in to their opponents' headquarters. It was the FBI and DOJ busting in to the home of their political opponents. And if the facts play out the way we think, then um, a lot of people are going to be held accountable, just like they were rightfully so for the violations along Watergate at the highest levels of government. And I think that uh, people will criticize that analogy, but I can't think of a better way to encapsulate it for the American public, because that's one they can all relate to. And it was egregious then. It was a gross violation of the law by the highest levels of the Department of Justice, the FBI, and the White House. Because it wasn't done by subpoena. Normally, if you're seeking documents, you issue a subpoena and then receive them as a consequence. Here, you had 30 FBI agents heavily armed showing up. My sources are telling me that even the, the uh, area around President Trump's great American flag was just full of black cars and SUVs from the FBI. So they wanted this to be a show of force. They wanted this to be a performance. Uh, and I think people right now all over the country are seeing it as an extreme and very dangerous exercise of politics, not legitimate law enforcement activity. In Watergate, they snuck in and supposedly stole a few documents, things like that. Here, they just raided a home, took out a bunch of documents, took out computers. To me, they made Watergate look rather small by comparison. It puts them, this Justice Department and this administration, in that same elite echelon with uh, people like Castro, Maduro, well, Chavez before Maduro, where and, and Putin and others going back to the 1930s, 
who would arrest, intimidate their opponents and use the full force of their Justice Department or their legal team to go after people. Uh, it is an entirely new thing for this constitutional republic. And it really does put our republic in grave danger. It may be irreparable harm. The cases continue to grow, not only on potential violations of the law from the Biden administration, but also on possible conflicts of interest within the legal system. A key figure in this has become a judge who signed the warrant to raid Mar-a-Lago, United States Magistrate Judge for the Southern District of Florida, Bruce Reinhardt. We're now learning other things about this uh, scenario. So we now know in June there was an offer of cooperation and the FBI and the Justice Department were there. That seems odd then to raid a place when you had cooperation. Secondly, we know that the judge who authorized this search warrant, Judge Reinhardt, he previously, six weeks before signing the warrant, recused himself from a case involving Donald Trump. This was the lawsuit that Donald Trump filed against Hillary Clinton and the Democrats saying they engaged in a conspiracy and smeared me in a, in a RICO way, in a racketeering way, during the 2016 election with their false Russia collusion allegations. The judge recused himself on June 22nd from that say, case saying he couldn't be impartial in a case brought by Donald Trump. That's a major declaration. It is required by a judge if they feel they can't be impartial. Six weeks later, though, he felt comfortable signing a warrant for the same figure, Donald Trump. We'll need to find out more why that is, but that adds to the concerns of the Americans. All right, now you got the FBI going to a guy that seems to have an impartiality issue with Democrats and Donald Trump, but it gets worse. We now know there are Facebook posts by this judge one year before he was named to the bench. He was named to the bench in 2018. In 2017, he had a Facebook post in which he called into question President Trump's moral character, the sitting president of the United States. Now, at this time, he wasn't a judge. He was a lawyer. But normally, that expression of political opinion would cast most Americans and say he can't be an, uh, uh, a neutral arbiter in a search warrant involving the person he just questioned the moral integrity of. Meanwhile, Trump's lawyers say that Trump had been cooperating with authorities for months, raising questions about the justification and appropriateness of the search. We had given them access to the room before. You know, they had said, we'd like to search. We think you have classified information and we think it's in this storage facility. And so President Trump invited the FBI to Mar-a-Lago and was very generous and opened his home to them and said, what would you like to see? Take a look and, you know, show them whatever you want. And so... I was there with uh, another attorney, the, the lead attorney on this case, and we'd let the FBI do whatever they wanted and showed them the room and let them look around and inspect. Nothing had been hidden and nothing had been kept secret from them, which makes this all the more ridiculous. We had been very cooperative with them before, and it, it's unclear to me why they went to such drastic measures to do this, but they did. Attorney General Merrick Garland has sought to defend the department's actions but has provided little information about the case, citing federal law and ethical rules. I personally approved the decision to seek a search warrant in this matter. The department does not take such a decision lightly. The men and women of the FBI and the Justice Department are dedicated, patriotic public servants. Every day, they protect the American people from violent crime, terrorism, and other threats to their safety, I am honored to work alongside them. 
But not all are convinced by the Attorney General's statements. To many, the raid is the latest example and a long-running concern that the systems of justice in the United States are being used politically, and that the Department of Justice is enacting a two-tiered system of law, with the FBI as a tool for political attacks. In the Russia collusion case, we have people we know that lied, we know that they misled a court, that they doctored evidence, that there was a decision to continue investigating, for instance, General Michael Flynn, when the career agents on the front line following the operations manual, the FBI said, there's no more reason to investigate this. We lawfully have to shut down our investigation of Michael Flynn because there's no evidence of wrongdoing. And the seventh floor, where James Comey and Andrew McCabe said, nope, keep going, go interview him. When you see those amazing revelations, there is enormous evidence of wrongdoing. Just last week, Senator Grassley brought forward a whole new piece of information. Multiple whistleblowers in the Washington field office of the FBI. By the way, the same office that raided Donald Trump's uh, uh, compound earlier this week, that the assistant special agent in charge had a bias against President Trump. They had people making decisions on what should be investigated or start to investigate or not investigate and what uh, to sh shut down an investigation had political bias in it. It's as simple as uh, s uh, opening a case against uh, Trump that was based on fuzzy liberal newspaper reports. It was a good reason to advance the the investigation. But when it come to Hunter Biden, with plenty of concrete information, it was shut down. It's pretty simple. Didn't James Comey tell us that when he was investigating Hillary Clinton and he found thousands of emails that were classified and there was evidence that she took a hammer and broke up her devices and the bleach bit uh, program to bleach it. He basically said, well, I can't go. She did things that were wrong, but she's a candidate. I'm not going to interfere in an election. You know, when I was a federal prosecutor, the, I was constantly told, if we ever bring a prosecution related to a political target, we don't bring it around an election cycle. That has been the mandate at the Department of Justice for as long as I can remember. It's consistently touted, been touted as a mandate for the reason why the Hunter Biden criminal probe has not reached an indictment, because we're inside of 90 days to the midterm election. Apparently that mandate has been thrown out by this attorney general. What happened to not bringing, and we know this from the Hillary Clinton email investigation too, not bringing or announcing charges around an election cycle. That's also been thrown at John Durham a lot because they don't want him to bring more indictments this summer. It's too close to an election. But it's okay to prosecute President Trump possibly and raid his home inside 90 days. There, there is no equal application of the law anymore. It's gone. Another growing concern is that of the intel community and the administrative state, often framed as the deep state of unelected bureaucrats. Take on the intelligence community. They have six ways from Sunday at getting back at you. So even for a practical, supposedly hard-nosed businessman, he's being really dumb to do this. The greatest threat to our country right now is clearly internal. And the security state complex and the complexity of the security state as it has grown in, uh, in leaps and, and, and bounds in the last 20 years or so, uh, where it is now, oh, it is now overtaking our uh, system of government and our rule of law. We can no longer deny that. We have, you know, a dozen or more whistleblowers coming to the Justice Department, not going to the majority party, coming to the minority party and saying, here's what's happening. 
Uh, we're being told to to label crimes as domestic uh, terror threats. We're you know domestic threats of violence, uh, not against school shooters, not against Epstein's client list, but against parents who go to school board meetings or against people who speak out against things that the Biden administration is doing. As the raid of Mar-a-Lago took place, analysts were also quick to note that President Trump is not the only target. Members of the Freedom Caucus and any person of prominence who has stood by President Trump are also being targeted by the Biden administration. This includes Representative Scott Perry, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Peter Navarro, General Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, and others. Well, I have the phone back uh, since I've learned from my attorneys or through my attorneys with the Department of Justice that I am not a target of an investigation, uh, which quite honestly begs the question, then why did they seize my phone? You know, so one of the concerns that, you know, first of all, it's my personal phone. So conversations with my wife, other legislators, constituents, they're all on that phone. And and there's a reason that we have a separation of powers. We don't want the the executive branch trying to coerce the legislative branch uh, to do anything or or to not do anything or vote a certain way or not vote a certain way. Right now, it looks like the federal, the DOJ, for maybe the first time in history, is preparing to pierce that veil. Everyone's seen what they've done to me since day one. They tried to take my name off the ballot with a ridiculous court case, putting me on the witness stand under oath, accusing me of insurrection, which is such an insult and such a lie. Um, but they're coming after that list of people that you just named because we are we are doing this for the right reasons. We're doing this for the American people. The FBI had a had a uh, phony case against me for over four years, and it was an absolute persecution by the Department of Justice and, and the FBI, and frankly, uh, elements of the the previous White House that we now know is completely false. And they, yet, they they continued to uh, persecute me, and they spent millions of man hours. They spent millions of dollars uh, to to discover that, in fact, from a from a special uh, prosecutor who investigated the thing on behalf of the Department of Justice, they found that it that no crimes were committed, and uh, and yet they continued to persecute me, and they knew it from the beginning, just as they know what is going on here with uh, President Donald J. Trump. My my reaction to uh, the raid on Mar-a-Lago was not surprised. I was not surprised when it when I got word of it. I was upset. I was disappointed that that our our uh, unprecedented, totally unprecedented, completely historic uh, assault on our democracy. It is also an assault on our very fabric of our uh, republic and our entire democracy. I'll refer to my own case and say I still don't have a copy of the affidavit that was used to obtain the warrant uh, for the search of my house. So uh, it could be something that uh, the president's lawyers need to do wrangling in order to get access to, but they should certainly uh, try. And I think that a warrant needs to have that support uh, and not just be part of a, of a secret process. Uh, in terms of you know what the Justice Department is doing here with the president, I think it's entirely uh, uh, unprecedented. Uh, it's not to say that uh, anyone in America is above the law, because you're certainly going to hear that as the repeated uh, talking point from 
MSNBC and CNN. No one is above the law, therefore whatever uh, they want to try to do to Trump is proper. But that totally ignores uh, the memos of the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, the historical precedent, and in particular to do this as is being reported based on issues about documents when there have been so many document issues that prominent uh, Democrats have had that have been totally swept under the rug. It just, you know, it, it, it defies uh, rational explanation to think that this is really something that is not uh, explainable by pure politics. The full picture of what's unfolding is raising another key question. What does it mean for America if the Department of Justice and criminal investigations are being used for politics? Is the United States now seeing a dual justice system where liberals are treated one way and conservatives are treated another? We've always prided ourselves as a country that justice system was above politics, that we didn't do the things that banana republic uh, nations do. Beginning in 2016, Americans began to have doubts. When we began to unravel the Russia collusion reporting beginning in the summer of 17, people started to see an FBI that had been weaponized by the Democratic Party, by complaints brought in by people like Michael Sussman uh, and Christopher Steele on the payroll of the Clinton campaign, feeding the FBI information that turned out not to be true, and the FBI complying and opening up an investigation that tied down a Republican president for the first two, two and a half years of his presidency. The doubt began to be planted then, and as more extraordinary revelations that come out that an FBI agent lied to the court and doctored information, that the FBI's FISA warrants weren't true, uh, that the FBI hid things from Congress, those doubts kept growing. And you started to hear people say, we have a dual justice system in America. To put it bluntly, you had, you had made up dirt, and then they would feed it into the media. The media would write a story. At the same time, they would take that dirt and they'd have operatives feed it into their buddies at the FBI. And so then all of a sudden they would go to a court and they would say, oh my gosh, look at all this, Russians everywhere with Trump. Uh, look, we've got stories about it and all the fake news. Uh, and they'd go to the, the, you know, to the court. And then of course the FBI would go in and say, oh my God, we have all these sources. And they'd feed it into the court. The problem is, it was all a lie. None of it was true. It's just all the same. It's just all one and the same. It's people that are after power trying to destroy their political enemies. That's all this is about, which is what happens in third world countries where one party works to destroy uh, the other party. And it's it's been nonstop for, for five years against President Trump because look, he was a disruptor. He was, he was not somebody from politics. He had never worked in Washington. And he came in and said, look, we're gonna do things differently. And he shocked the kind of ruling class in this country. Uh, and they've never, uh, they've never forgave him. It just kind of fits into the whole narrative that there's two standards of justice, one for all of you folks and one for the elites that are running the show. And when you watch Hunter Biden with all the questions regarding him, Hillary Clinton, James Comey, the list goes on and on of these folks that seem to get away with every single thing that they do where there seems to be actionable, actionable evidence right there in front of the American people. Meanwhile, they seem to be all these setups of Michael Flynn, of course, the president and, and people that are allied to, with him. Uh, people don't like two standards of justice. They want one standard for everybody, and they want to believe that no one is above the law, but that the law is not used improperly to persecute people that have a different opinion politically than the people in power. The political witch hunt isn't limited to officials either. Even Trump supporters and conservative parents 
are facing different degrees of legal targeting that they believe is politically motivated. There are two different currents here in this long-running series of operations. The first is strictly political, with political purposes. And that is, above all, to prevent Donald Trump from holding office, from running for president ever again. But it's also targeting Trump aides and meant to damage their reputations, meant to put them in jail. The conviction of former Trump aide and advisor Steve Bannon, the arrest of another Trump aide, Peter Navarro, putting the man in handcuffs in public. It's reminiscent of what they did to Roger Stone when the FBI showed up at Roger Stone's house, conveniently calling CNN to tip them off about a high-profile arrest of a man in his 70s who, of course, was not going to cause violence. They wanted to threaten to terrorize him. It's also led to other political campaigns, like going after opposition journalists like James O'Keefe. The FBI again broke down his door. The NSA spied on opposition journalists Tucker Carlson. So there are political purposes to destroy people, to harm their careers, to end their careers, to put them in front of juries and to cost them hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. You combine that with the attacks that we've seen on everyday citizens. The FBI, of course, has been using counterterrorism resources to go after moms and dads uh, who speak out too vociferously at uh, school board meetings. This really paints a a very troubling pattern. And I think these uh, arguments by members of Congress that this represents the uh, politicization and the weaponization of federal law enforcement against the opposition, uh, I think those are are very legitimate uh, allegations that need to be seriously considered. In the aftermath of the raid on Mar-a-Lago, Republicans were quick to rally, and Americans are now looking to their representatives for a deeper investigation into the raid that's increasingly being viewed as a political scandal. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has vowed to investigate the DOJ and leave no stone unturned if Republicans gain control of the House in the midterms. It's unprecedented that you would go into a former president. We've got a a job as the Oversight Committee to to push back on this and to really get to the bottom of what's going on and to help bring sunlight to the bad, corrupt actions that are going on and then to work to get it out. And so already this week, the Oversight Committee, we sent a letter to the National Archives to preserve their records for anything involving uh, this. The raid on Mar-a-Lago home of the 45th President of the United States, has sent shockwaves through the nation. The country is waiting to see whether the Biden administration moves forward with legal actions against Trump and whether Republicans counter with their own investigations. Yet beyond the current news cycle, the raid is bringing about a deeper discussion on the state of the American Union, on what the perceived problems with the justice system and the political climate could mean for the future of the country. The raid on Donald Trump's residence, Mar-a-Lago, on Monday was the latest link in a long series of operations starting six years ago with absurd claims that Donald Trump was the asset of a foreign country. That operation was called Russiagate. They did this before he got elected. They did it for four years after he was elected. They were involved in the biggest coup attempt uh, in, in American history. You know that no republic lasts much more than 200 years. Most of them never last 200 years. We are a real anomaly. And the, the, one of the ways that they end their time as a republic is when you have people that are destroying the country in leadership positions. That's what brought an end to the Roman Republic. They actually 
were a republic. They elected representatives. And uh, the military, led by Caesar, crossed the Rubicon River that was illegal to do because there was a total absence of leadership among the civilian. And uh, so we're going to have to have Republican leadership really step up uh, to try to rein in the damage that's been done by the Democrat leadership. Uh, we're too close to the end of this nation as a constitutional republic unless we can hold to account the people that have brought us so close to the edge of losing our republic. There's another equally dangerous and much darker current as well, and that is this operation also serves spiritual and moral and psychological ends too. It's meant to demoralize Americans, to desecrate America, to desecrate our symbols, to desecrate our history. We saw during the George Floyd riots, people overturning statues and monuments to champions of our American past like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt. But that's the effect, to demoralize us to desecrate our history, to desecrate our country, to desecrate our communities and our families. It's a totalitarian operation. And that's what we mean by totalitarianism. It's not just the methods, it's also the intent. This brings up a larger question because we're in a revolutionary cycle where the left has now said, under the pretext that Donald Trump is so extraordinarily threatening to the republic that it requires any means necessary to end him, and therefore we're going to do things that are revolutionary. And what do I mean by that? Well, they tried to do things legally, or they, or it, they tried to do things that were institutional. Let's get rid of the filibuster. Let's pack the court. We're going to bring in four, uh, two more states. We're going to have a national voting law. We're going to get rid of the electoral call. None of that's worked yet. So now they're doing things extra legally. And that's what happened in the Roman Republic. It happened at the end of Athenian democracy. That's what happened in 1793-94 to the corrective of Napoleon that was happening in Germany. So that's what the Democrats have, have started. And we'll see how it plays out. Six. Josh, uh, welcome into the Kiva. How are you? Hey, real pleasure being here. It's uh, our pleasure. Uh, trust us. Uh, this is not a story that's uh, got to be easy to cover. Um, it's had real impacts. Uh, we've got uh, someone uh, last week, uh, is slipping my mind right now, but convicted for 84 months, seven years in prison. And, and that's another uh, a man who just, you know, showed up to Washington, D.C. He happened to be armed. I'm a constitutional carry guy. I think that people should be, uh, you know, we love our militias. They're our last sort of line of defense against tyranny, really, which is what we're seeing here in this country. But uh, he's got seven years, and he's the first one. I mean, it's going to go on and on and on. But what really happened? Uh, were you on the ground? I know you've talked to people who are on the ground. What happened uh, as they refer to it as J6? I, that bugs me, but... You know, what happened on January 6th? Well, I, I was there reporting from early morning until late night. And so I was actually there probably like 4, 5 a.m. Uh, waiting to get into the ellipse with the press where Trump spoke. 
And I think like everybody else, we didn't think anything was happening at the Capitol building. Uh, little did we know is that while Trump was still speaking, a group of people was already breaching the Capitol. And these individuals, uh, really the FBI seems to have little or no interest in them. Right. And, and this is where the story gets really crazy. The people who committed the actual crimes on January 6th, who did everything that the New York Times and the January 6th committee are accusing everybody of doing, the FBI and most of the government and even most of the media seems to have no interest in them. Right. And so why do they not have interest in the people who were breaching the Capitol? People like Ray Epps and all the people around him, these yeah. estimated 100, uh, around 100, suspicious actors and material witnesses. Why do they not care about that? And by the way, do we have names for all of the 100 people or...? We, we, we don't, although some of it is coming out. Okay. Um, some of the lawyers have been putting documents together detailing some of these individuals. And, and for our audience, uh, describe Ray Epps uh, uh, to our audience. He's probably uh, the most talked about and the most curious member. As You call him the lead instigator. And there's, there's a reason why people care about him so much. It's because he's on video the day before the breach of the Capitol telling people we need to go into the building. And he's repeating this, and the crowd starts chanting Fed because they think he's a Fed for saying that. They don't support him. Ray Epps, on video, was leading people in the breach of the Capitol. On video, he's with the group who are pulling down the police barricades in a very systematic and coordinating-looking way, removing the police barricades, removing the signs saying, do not enter, and then while a second, while a third group, because there's two groups coordinating on that, a third group goes inside the Capitol and then opens the door from the inside. Ray Epps was one of those individuals, and he's the one who, ironically, most conservatives want to see investigated, but who the federal agencies don't seem to be interested in. There's in fact, a very interesting reason why, because I think he's been listed as? Well, people believe that he might, uh, in fact, be a federal agent, although that's, okay. that's, that's not for sure, of course. So you're doing the investigative reporter for... What I now believe is probably the most tr trusted uh, conservative publication, Epoch Times. And let's step away from J6, as they call it, January 6th, uh, here with Josh Phillip, the real story of January 6th. Tell us about how you got started with Epoch Times. Let's go back there. So I've been with Epoch Times since 2006. And at the time, I was still just a student um, and basically, you know, journalism school, just community college, nothing special. Just sending in articles here and there. And then 2008, I got offered a summer internship. Uh, I lived in San Diego. Internship was in New York. So I said, hey, why not? I had nothing to go on this summer anyways. I go to New York, and I accidentally uncover one of the Chinese Communist Party's largest spy operations in the United States, uh, which is the United Front Work Department which branch of the Chinese Communist Party, United Front Work Department, working hand-in-hand -hand with the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office on the government side, with the general political department on the military side, doing what they call liaison work. And what they're doing is, is they go through the Chinese consulates, and they use the Chinese consulates almost like a foreign, like a, like a foreign base, like a foreign government branch. And from there, they reach out to doing what they call liaison work, uh, reaching out to the different tongs, Tongs are like the guilds or fraternal organizations that work as the unofficial governing bodies of Chinese communities. Underneath the Tongs is the Chinese Mafia. 
And what the CCP does is it goes to these organizations, gets them to switch their allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party, and then controls tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of individuals that they can use for espionage. Wow. So they'll invite... Uh, you know, American political candidates or people in office to go on trips to China. They'll wine, dine them, and try to you know, make them caught in honey traps, like sex traps, or subvert them. Right. They do the same thing to wealthy investors, IT workers, businessmen, journalists, you name it. Anybody of any degree of influence in a country, they will target like this and try to compromise. Wow. That is uh, quite the start. So you stumbled upon that, and it turned into a career 14 years later where you're telling the story on how to incriminate a president. And the real story of January 6th, an epoch times, or as the way you described it, yep, epic. Is that the better way to say epic times documentary? Um, is that, that the correct way to say well, it? Well, if you're British, it's epoch. I'm not British. If you're American, it's epic. Well, okay. I mean, it, it, it sounds more sophisticated. It's, it's, it's like the fine wine, so you're saying. You know. uh, by the way, uh, folks, this is uh, now streaming on Epoch TV. Uh, EpochTV.com, the real story of January 6th. Okay, so we, we, we left, uh, checked in with apps, and they, we might believe to be uh, FBI informant working for the FBI. Is there a well, hot we, trail there? We should be there? clear that's what people suspect. We suspect. do not have evidence of that. People but we have conservative it. talkers who are telling us all the time that he's an FBI informant or he worked for the FBI. And you've done the real investigative reporting, and I haven't talked much about it, to be quite honest. I just... I haven't paid that much attention. I don't like, I think, the way that it sort of gears towards uh, 45 President Donald J. Trump. I certainly don't appreciate a lot of the other things that are sort of on the periphery of that. But, you know, by and large, I think, you know, somebody who doesn't believe in, uh, in that it was a, a fair election, the outcome, uh, I certainly wouldn't have been advocating, nor would anybody else be advocating for what actually happened. And it seems like the real instigators were not people on our, on our side. And I think that that's maybe part of the story, of the real story of January 6th. Absolutely. So the documentary, we don't just look at that. We also look at police use of force. We look at the four deaths that day. Okay. Uh, we look at there, people. Was there who, a total of six, though, in all, right? Now, that, that, that is a lie that's even being reported by the judges. Really? Yes. Four people died that day. They, they claim that two police officers died. That is an absolute lie. Wow. Yeah. So and this is documented. I'm, not, I'm just making this up. So. They say Officer Sicknick was killed. They claim yeah. police people. They, they claim people beat him. The original stories of people beat him to death with like a fire extinguisher. That's a lie. Uh, Officer Sicknick died the following day of a heart attack, right. and the D.C. coroner has ruled it a natural death. And so the judges are even repeating this, uh, claiming that he was killed by the protesters. And then I don't know who even the sixth person was. That's also a total lie. Wow. But. Four people did die that day, and we have video. Everyone knows about I think people about Ashley Babbitt. She yes, climbed through the window. Yes. She was shot by Officer Bird. We watched the video, and uh, as I oftentimes comment on our air, she was murdered. But people don't know about the other three people who died. Uh, and we have video evidence suggesting that actually they may have been killed by police. So one of these individuals is Roseanne Boylan, who was, uh, she died in the tunnel leading into the Capitol. The other two died of heart attacks, or, you know, I think one was a stroke. Now, let's talk about the, the heart attacks first. So what happened with these? 
police were randomly throwing munitions into the crowd. We have uh, body cam footage of one of the officers, not something that's I'm thinking publicly available. Body cam footage, he's running around like a maniac, checking police, like he's like starting a mosh pit, checking other police, grabbing munitions off, their, off of them. He's grabbing uh, taser cartridges. He's walking up to random Trump supporters, shooting them with tasers, dropping them, not arresting them. He's just doing this just... To, like what looks like malicious intent, just instigating the crowd. He's grabbing these explosives, pulling the pins, like right away, lobbing them to the crowd, grabbing more munitions off other officers. The guy's got like a total maniac. These things go off and they they explode. They they shoot up these plastic uh, munitions, and they can kill you. And sure enough, two of the individual the two individuals had heart attacks, were struck by these, and fell to the ground. We don't know if that one officer threw them, but uh, some officer did fell to the ground with the blast and then died and then they ruled the the coroner ruled these natural deaths he said it was heart attacks so take it for what you will uh just taking it for your word and as the uh lead investigative reporter the senior investigative reporter there for epoch times and the real story of january 6 just hearing that uh i will go and watch this tonight uh and get more of the information on it. Is there video coverage of this or as you said it's not we, we have public? the actual footage Wow. Yeah, we, we managed to get the footage. The other individual who died was Roseanne Boylan. Roseanne Boylan, get this. So she was a protester at one of the entrances. Where you, I think a lot of the footage people see is people fighting with police at this You're entrance right. to the building. Yeah. Or the moving, or the tunnels, or the climbing. Well, well there's, there's, there's three things people see. So one, you look at the actual people raiding the Capitol. That was the suspicious actors mostly. And okay. those are the people who police don't have any interest in or have little interest in. The other people who entered the building were people at the tunnel who were just fighting with police. The other ones are those who just, the police opened the doors and were literally waving them in and escorting them into the building, many of whom are being charged like with like 20 years in prison now. Right. Now that fighting at the door, there, this is, this, the story of that is totally different from what people are being told. That's where Roseanne Boylan died. What happened was this, we have, and we actually have all the footage showing this throughout the entire thing. Police deployed tear gas. Now that in and of itself is a violation of use of force because when you, when you deploy tear gas in an enclosed area, it sucks out the oxygen. You can kill people. They do that, they suck out the oxygen, and what happens, why don't you do it? It's because people panic and people flee and they start trampling each other and then people die. And that's what happened to Roseanne Boylan. People, the police deploy the tear gas. People start freaking out. They run. They, she gets trampled. She falls. People are falling on top of her. P people in, out, outside the tunnel are like, you know, horrified. They're begging police to save this woman's life. There's one person holding her hand and holds her hand as she loses consciousness. The, the police start beating the people in the head with batons. The people who are trying to help Roseanne. Trying try to help her, yeah. One of the guys bleeding because police are hitting him, and he's still begging the police, please save this woman's life, and you can hear him on camera begging them. What do the police do? Roseanne Boylan loses consciousness. They're watching this woman die. Then one of the police officers grabs a metal, or a wooden stick, it wasn't even a baton, and starts beating this woman, Roseanne Boylan, in the head, on the ground, or on the side, beating her while she's unconscious. And people are watching this and they're freaking out. They're saying, you know, what are you doing? And that's the video footage you watch. Is people are trying to save this woman's life while the police beat her unconscious body. That's the real context of what happened there.
That's a lot for you guys to take. Uh, it's too much for me to envision, uh, obviously, radio, theater, the mind. Um, you know, having met you here just for a very short time, uh, Joshua Phillip, I know that you're not an emotional guy, um, but the conveyance of the emotion just by you, your description of what has happened, I think is enough to uh, anger every person and want to make them do something about it. And we, of course, don't advocate for anything, but I think that uh, just makes us all angry to our very core. A um, couple of questions uh, without giving too much away because I'm sure you'd probably get into the middle of this, but yeah. do we know if the, the police officers, were these the Capitol Police who were beating her? Uh, that was D.C. Metro, okay. I believe. In their training manuals, and I'm almost kind of publicly litigating, I'm more just kind of curious from the question, um, is there ever a time where they have uh, been trained on how, in their manuals, how to use tear gas? So and we actually... We actually brought on the documentary a man named Stan Keffart. Stan Keffart okay. is the number one expert on police use of force. Okay. So if you want, if you're in a trial and you need someone to testify on police use of force, he's the guy. He's listed as the number one expert. He's okay. the top guy. And in his assessment, that was assault. That was assault under color of authority with intention to intention to cause grievous bodily harm. The police officer did that, committed a crime. He also says the shooting of Ashley Babbitt, based on our video right. analysis, was a murder. Yeah, murder. I say and murder he, all uh, we show him multiple instances of police use of force, and he's saying not only did the police doing it commit crimes that frankly should be prosecuted for it, but even the bystander police officers should face charges. Similar to officer, you know, the officer who kneeled on George Floyd's neck. It wasn't just him charged, it's the officers around him because it didn't stop him. Right. Same thing on January 6th. Not only did they have officers who committed serious crimes, murder, possibly, uh, assault to, with intent to cause egregious bodily harm, assault under color of authority. Not only did he have even that, but even possible entrapment. But you had officers standing by, watching and letting this happen, and all of them should be charged for this. I really like the word shall. Uh, the government likes the word shall. They put it in there. Uh, you say should be uh, under expert testimony. Number one uh, expert testimony that they brought in. Uh, we now have the documents. Does your does Epic, Epic Times documentary, does your uh, documentary, which shows you know visibly what's happening to the people who suffered uh, on that day, um, the, the ultimate uh, sacrifice, does it have teeth for someone to pick it up from that point and possibly do something with it? Or is this story cooked, done, don't try to fight back? And, and, you're, and you're a journalist. I'm just wondering, when you're providing that type of, of information, does it perhaps uh, ignite uh, an attorney? Does it ignite some, I, I some th issues? I think if people watch it, they'll find that everything we show is grounded in video evidence. Okay. And it's it's essentially analysis based on video evidence, and so okay. we we ground everything we say in visible video evidence, and we don't deviate from anything that we could prove in a court of law. Well, um, that said, of course, you know I think it's you'll find it's a very level-headed analysis. I think everyone we have in it's very calm and very yeah. rational. We and need so, we need that nowadays. Yeah, <laughs> the the country's completely divided and totally crazy. So yeah. I can tell you, I appreciate that more than anything. It's hard for hard enough for us to like get the story, much less talk to the other side. Yeah, but we also show a lot of what could be considered exculpatory evidence, okay. evidence that could prove the innocence of a lot of people, okay. uh, including actually the Oath Keepers. We have video evidence showing their innocence on, on some pretty serious stuff.
Wow. This is serious work. Uh, you've got to be proud of it. And I think that people uh, feel like that they don't have a voice. Uh, the, the, we saw what happened uh, yesterday with uh, Alex Jones. Oh, crazy, um, yeah. We've seen what's happened with other people who have uh, spoken up, uh, certainly our own Coy Griffith in, in the state of New Mexico. What's happened to him? I mean, there is a, a real attempt to politically slime and uh, use J6, as they call it, uh, or any of this stuff uh, against them. Um, tell us about... Um, very quickly for everybody who, uh, who hasn't downloaded the app or download, uh, tell us about you know your media consumption habits, if you will, from Epoch Times. What do you what do you go to? What do you like to get up in the morning or or read while you're working out or or what what, what do you think is useful about Epoch Times? We want to get some new subscribers. Well, with so the Epoch person. Times, we we're really trying to do what we call traditional journalism. Okay. <clears throat> Where the purpose of news is merely to give people an accurate understanding of what's happening in the world. That and also being the watchdog of the, for the American people. People expect us to make sure that government is working like it should, yes. that they're living up to their promises, that laws are being followed, and if they're violating these things, then we need to tell people they're being violated. So anytime there's a major incident, we look into it personally. Uh, we were some of the reporters who broke the stories on, for example, uh, the origins of COVID. In fact, I did one of yeah. the... The definitive documentaries we, we on that. We that a lot. Yeah. Uh, we talked a lot about election fraud. In fact, we also did a lot of really substantial reporting on this. We, we broke some of the major stories around Spygate. In fact, I think we were leading the reporting for a long time. And so we, we tend to be kind of on the front lines of looking into things ourselves and not following what they, I think most people take as the established narrative of what we're told things should be. We don't believe in following what other media say it is. We look into it personally. Josh, it's been a real pleasure meeting you. I know our, our paths are going to cross again. Uh, uh, folks, we want to get everybody subscribed to the Epoch Times, epochtv.com, and uh, the real story of January 6th. I'm going to watch it uh, tonight. Uh, I've got to take a deep breath. I probably need to work out a little bit, making sure I get some of those uh, uh, bad feelings out before I have to sort of indulge on this. Uh, this is not light reading or light film making and certainly not uh, it, it, uh, something that is going to make people feel good, but it is always helpful and it always makes people feel good to actually know the truth. Joshua, thank you so much for your time. Hey, real pleasure being here. Thank Back you. Back after a quick break here in the Kiva on AM600KIVA, abq.fm, rockertop.com. They dragged her out and it reminded me of deer hunting. You drag out a deer carcass. We need more he was completely out of control. He himself was committing crimes in the process. People from all over the nation, from every state. There has been a lot of fraud. He could stop this. At least one person over here is being injured and taken Capitol away. Capitol Hill, overtaken by Americans. The story of January 6th changes drastically, depending on who's telling it. The House Select Committee on January 6th has deemed the incident an attack on the American system, comparable to the bombing of Pearl Harbor or even the terrorist attacks on 9-11. It's being investigated as a potential insurrection that could allegedly incriminate former President Donald Trump. And it's being used domestically to frame a new narrative on domestic extremism. Yet is this narrative 
really the case. Imagine if the American people actually saw just what happened to Roseanne Boylan and these officers who keep portraying themselves as heroes that day. He fires at her and strikes her in the left shoulder. It's a failure not only of training, but it's also a failure of bystandership and supervision. January 6th demands a full and impartial investigation, one free from foregone conclusions, hidden agendas, and naked hyperbole. The nation needs a serious examination of January 6th, one that includes the subjects too often ignored in media coverage and in political speech. With interviews, on-the-ground reporting, and exclusive footage, we'll now tell the real story of January 6th. Yeah, we're on the ellipse now. We'll meet you soon. Good stuff. Thank you. To begin this investigation, I sat down with Joe Hanneman, the lead reporter on January 6th at the Epic Times, to review our footage. January 6th started out as a protest, uh, a large gathering to hear President Trump speak about his concerns and his charges that there was widespread fraud of the presidential election. Uh, people came in very large numbers to the Ellipse in Washington, D.C. to hear his speech. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Stop the steal. His speech ran long, or his appearance went over time. And I think that caused some issues over at the Capitol because there were people gathered over there who were already in the process of breaching some of the security lines before the president had stopped speaking. So the people that were encouraged to go to the Capitol peacefully and made their voices heard were largely still over listening to the president when some of these uh, unusual things happened on the Capitol grounds. It really goes to the heart of other unusual happenings that day. The role of suspicious actors in various places around the Capitol, and all of which lead you to the conclusion that a deeper look is needed to really define that, what January 6th is, because we're still trying to define it. People are talking about violence on January 6th. How did the police factor into this? I mean, who was really instigating things? Which side? Well, there was plenty of police uh, provocation. The initial use of explosive munitions that day that started at about 1.25 in the afternoon, where the police launched explosives into the crowd, which was pretty much just milling there and standing. And these were very loud, deafening. And some of them had projectiles, uh, hard plastic pellets that rained down, and uh, some had tear gas in them. But when they landed in the middle, they caused injuries, and they got a very angry response. That was a large crowd. From what I saw, there was quite a few older people in that crowd, and they fired munitions even far to the back, people that wouldn't have known what was going on up front. So this created an atmosphere that I think percolated through the rest of the day, and they continued firing into this crowd for well over an hour using those, what I would call, heavy munitions. So I don't know what their strategy was in using munitions, which uh, they had said they were not going to use the less than lethal force munitions and things like that on January 6th. Were the actions of the Capitol Police out of line? Were there violations in use of force? 
and what are the legalities of this? We spoke with Stan Keffard, one of the nation's top experts on police use of force and one of the top-rated expert witnesses in court cases on crowd control. Keffard has 42 years of law enforcement experience, including as security director for the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. He served as an officer, detective, undersheriff, and chief of police at jurisdictions in Arizona, California, and Missouri. He has testified more than 350 times in federal, state, and tribal courts. Supervisory failure, a frontline supervisor, a sergeant or whoever is in control, a lieutenant, should have put those people in posted positions or in a skirmish line or in a defense posture, put them between the objective that they were protecting and the crowd. That wasn't being done. That was a shooting gallery up there. A congregation of officers, I didn't see a supervisor among them, who were using these munitions to inflict harm uh, and injury on people below them. It's egregious. Rubber bullets have the potential to put an eye out. Shooting down into a crowd at the head level, which is the first primary target that would be hit by those rubber bullets, runs the risk of having somebody's eye put out or having them permanently disfigured. Impact front on from ground level is designed to hit somebody in the chest or lower so that it will sting and put them in flight. That is the design and purpose of the tool. These are people who largely support police law and order back the blue, so they did not understand why they were being fired upon. These were throughout the crowd, so there was definitely a stirring the pot effect, and, and eventually it, it did come to a boil in certain areas. The protester was climbing the wall. He had seen somebody put a giant American flag up on the scaffolding for inauguration, and he wanted to put his Trump flag up. He scaled the wall, and when he got up there, he didn't have a chance to put the flag up. A couple officers took swipes at him over the rail and missed him, but then he actually got into a standing position, and a motorcycle police officer from Capitol Police came up with a pretty good stride and shoved him, and he fell at least 20 feet and was seriously injured. That was witnessed by a lot of people. And then when they carried him out, a lot of the crowd saw the after effects of that and they were very upset. My analysis of a police officer pushing somebody off the wall is that that individual is committing a crime, a very serious crime, again, putting that person's life at risk. It is unconscionable for an officer to do such a thing. The officer is required to take that person off the wall, strip cuff them, take them into custody and arrest them. Hold tight, hold tight, we're getting remission. Hey, hey, we're coming What is happening here? Why is this officer behaving like this? And he's, his behavior seems to be a lot different from the other officers. He stood out to us because of, uh, he, almost in a manic state. He was looking for more munitions. He had used his up and so he was, going to fellow officers and grabbing their munitions, whether it was a taser cartridge or it was uh, one of the grenades that they use with the, the hard plastic pellets. Hey! We need more munitions! We did not see that from other officers, where it was, and as soon as he got one, he'd pull the pin and he would lob it into the crowd and you'd hear it explode. Hey, 
He was completely out of control. A supervisor should have stopped him, got him out of that area, and he himself was committing crimes in the process. Three ACD deployments, I got another taser. If you tase somebody, you're obligated to cuff them, now that you've neutralized them, arrest them, and that's not what he was doing. He was using those devices to punish people, not to arrest them, and that is unconscionable. Hey, Rich. Yeah. Put it up the scaffolding. It's a failure not only of training, but it's also a failure of bystandership and supervision. An officer who is placed at risk of being injured or killed because of the action of another officer who precipitated a circumstance that began to be dangerous because he wanted to arrest the person. Uh, has a stake in that and would go to the officer and say, I'm going to report you to the sergeant. I don't appreciate that. You put us at risk because of what you were doing. I'm upset with you. But munitions come basically in two types. There are burning grenades and there are blast dispersion grenades. This appears to be blast dispersion, which caught fire. And if you fire them at an individual rather than hitting the ground close to them, you run the risk of incurring injury to that individual that you're trying to A, disperse, or B, immobilize so you can arrest. If you do, that explosion at a face level could blind a person, it could deafen them for life, it could do both. And that was what was depicted here in this film script. There is no tactical reason at all. This is something that is, you're showing intent by shooting at that level. It was also evident to me that the crowd was angry. The one finger salute that was being given by that activist was a clear indication that they were mad. So what you've done is you've constructively created a problem that you started out to disperse or arrest people with. You have uh, contradicted what your mission was in the first instance, which was to disperse that crowd, get them back, because the chemical munitions were having effect on them uh, and not to uh, do something that is, uh, in my mind, sadistic and um, wrong, just wrong. Do we know anything about this incident with the bomb goes off in the crowd that this officer threw? Well, I'm not sure that particular grenade, uh, if we know what the result was, but others, they fell in amidst two gentlemen who fairly shortly after had cardiac events. One, I believe, was a stroke, the other was a heart attack. That loud of a retort in, I don't, certainly can't say that that medically triggered it, but a stimulus like that, anybody that's got a bad heart, those fellows both dropped pretty quickly, and they were carried out, and both of them eventually died. You may have a person who has a condition that could evoke a reaction on their part that would be detrimental to their health. I'm not going to say that that's what happened here. I'm not a medical expert. I don't know. But I think it more probable than not that this precipitated what happened. The closer the density of the crowd, the more problematic the use of these tools is in terms of a number of things. There have been panic reactions on compacted crowds resulted in trampling deaths and injuries uh, that occur. It's designed to get people to disperse, but in doing it with a compacted crowd, there isn't really that much maneuverability to disperse. And so it is a consideration that the commander uh, should review before 
using this type of grenade. And if he determines that that is a danger because of the compacted nature of the crowd, a burning uh, dispersion grenade would be a better tool because the gas is coming. It's not an explosion that causes the micro-pulverized uh, particles to be embedded in people. One of them may have been struck by a projectile. Uh, a witness did report that was struck in the side of the head, but they were in very close proximity, so they would have certainly felt the concussion, they may have even felt the heat, uh, and certainly any of the gas that came off of it. And the response was very quick. I mean, within a few seconds, the first fellow was down and he was without a pulse, and they never did bring him back. The autopsy uh, ruled it as a natural death because the, these fellows had history of, of heart disease, but it did not go into contributing factors. And you know the families were not surprised about the heart attack because of the health conditions, but you cannot ignore the timing. Again, it raises troubling questions that, that really haven't been answered. So the police are pushing people over this barricade. And they were moving people back, but they were on a somewhat of an elevated platform and were pushing them pretty violently and there was a concrete barrier and they, several of these guys got flipped over. They were pushed so hard and they tumbled. It wasn't a large height, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were injuries. It kind of shocks the census to see it because this wasn't uh, just calmly shoving people back with riot shields or whatever. These, these were, uh, well, kind of looked like a bar fight. It's very disorganized, as you can see, that they're, they're throwing punches, they're striking people with batons, and even who, one going to do it. Did they grab a, someone? Who did they grab here? That's the, that's the fellow who was tased. And he so was, they, they tased this guy and dragged him and in? And then dragged him in, yep. What's depicted here is a police mob confronting a mob and fighting with them using techniques and tactics that they're not authorized to use, that they were not taught and trained to use. Uh, their policies and procedures of any agency that I'm aware of does not include. Such thing as doing a front snap kick to an individual that you've chased away from the area that was responded to later by the crowd doing the same tactic, a front snap kick to the officers. You've created a one-on-one -on -one contest. This is not a karate match. This is a situation where you're obligated and duty bound to disperse the crowd and to move them back or arrest those who stay there. That's not what was done. There was a severe beating of a woman named Victoria White. What do we know about her case? Well, Victoria White from uh, Rochester, Minnesota, uh, with the crowd had come up to the, the tunnel entrance and she says she had been pushed in by the momentum of the crowd and she ended up being trapped against one of the walls. And fairly short time after she got in there, she was attacked by a police officer, a supervisor from the Metro DC Police Department. And it went on for maybe five minutes. She was struck nearly 40 times in the head and face. When the first blow came to my head by a metal baton, it was really bad. And I remember trying to keep myself up um, because I was a scared, I would be trampled. Originally, I thought I just got hit like three times on the head, but it wasn't until I saw the video that I realized like how bad it was getting the tunnel. I remember trying to keep myself up because I was scared I was going to be trampled. And I remember saying to the officer, 
He took an oath to the Constitution, and he called me the B-word. And that's when I got a, one of the hardest blows that I can remember. The head is a sphere. And what happens when you strike a spherical object with a blunted object, at least resistance, and glances off the head? That's a possibility. The second thing is you can hit them flush and kill them. If your intent was to kill them, you should have been using a firearm, not a baton. So it fails, tactically, to use a baton to attempt to use it as a disabling force option. The baton is registered as a less than lethal tool. It is a tool like tear gas. It is a tool like the taser. It is a tool like using your hands to subdue the person so that you can handcuff them and take them into custody. An officer striking her with an overhand blow approximately 10 times to her body, which she was protecting herself by putting her hands up to avoid the blows. Clearly a defensive position, not an attack position. She was also punched in the face with a closed fist by the same officer, I believe it was five times. She suffered a fairly severe beating and the, the video is, is pretty graphic. They were taking her back through the tunnel to detain her. Um, so it was near the doors, the entrance to the Capitol. She is in the midst of a circle of police and she's kind of getting jostled back and forth. I know at some point my shoes started to come off and I was falling backwards and my coat around my waist slipped down. And then I, I don't know. And then I know at one point I felt like I was falling backwards, then being pushed between officers, like ping-ponged. They had my hands behind my back. I didn't have my shoes. I just had my socks when they took me in. There's no words to express the way that I feel right now and um, the atrocities that are, have gone on. The fact that we're labeled as terrorists we're labeled as racist. I am a mom of four mixed daughters. I love all people. People's lies about us are causing myself and other January Sixers to endure unspeakable hell. And justice for us, it, it, it seems almost impossible. Phrases that would populate news sites all day and for months to come were repeated in near uniform. Storm the Capitol, breach police lines, insurrectionists, treason. Homogenous coverage came in real-time dispatches from the Capitol. But at the same time, rally-goers had trouble making calls or sending texts to the grounds all day. January 6th was a display of grievance on behalf of a large swath of American society. That such an aggressive slice of the political world pushed these terms relentlessly raises the first somewhat rhetorical question of why. Julie Kelly, political commentator and senior contributor to American Greatness, has been one of the leading journalists on this topic. It's all by design. And the idea that there are still people who believe, especially people on the right, who somehow still believe 
that the events of January 6th were organic. It was this uprising incited by Donald Trump's speech that day at the Ellipse. They're burying their head in the sand. So it's almost like a child. If no one is punished, no one pays any consequences for the biggest fraud perpetrated on the American people until January 6th, the Russia collusion hoax. Because they all got away with it, they were emboldened. And so that is what propelled them to then hijack the 2020 presidential election and then figure out a way after that how to bury and criminalize criticism of the 2020 election to finish off Donald Trump and the entire MAGA movement, which was the purpose of this inside job of January 6th. And so unfortunately, here we are. No one still has been held criminally responsible for Russiagate. And now we see the same interests dovetailing who coalesced behind the events of January 6th. What I think they're trying to do is take those two groups um, and tie them to Donald Trump. The Oath Keepers who provided security for Roger Stone on January 5th, that'll kind of be, in my view, the way to get to Trump through the Oath Keepers. The Proud Boys, obviously, when Trump was led into saying, stand back and stand by Proud Boys in that uh, 2020 debate, they're gonna describe that as the rallying call to get the Proud Boys to attack the Capitol, overthrow democracy. So I think that's where uh, they're headed, but that's right. This has always been about Trump, right? Well, it definitely is. It has nothing to do with January 6th, and this is why I think a lot of Americans are tuning it out, because they have not asked the hard questions. Why was the Capitol intentionally unsecure that day? Why did Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell's sergeant-at-arms, the people who are responsible for securing the Capitol, not Donald Trump, the Capitol Police Board, which uh, included those two men, Paul Irving and Michael Stanger, why did they repeatedly reject pleas from Steven Sund, the ex-Capitol Police Chief, for extra help that day? Even as the chaos unfolded on January 6th, they still denied um, deploying the National Guardsmen, which of course Trump had already offered. In December, I think I said it was a setup. Um, I think now I describe it as an inside job. Um, because it's the same interests who brought us Russiagate and everything since then, who conspired behind the scenes to execute the events of January 6th and now to uh, reap all of the political benefits that we've seen ever since. 18 months of nonstop fixation, um, the criminalization of political dissent, and an attempt to finally drive a stake in the heart of the MAGA movement. This stuff does not happen by accident in Washington, D.C. So that's basically how I describe uh, January 6th to, uh, to anyone who wants to know exactly what the truth is, and that is uh, the truth that I believe. If the media and if the FBI and the DOJ, in my documents, like the indictment or um, whatever my charges are, whatever, they make me out to be the aggressor. It's clearly not me, but the officers in that tunnel that were the aggressor. And if they can say, take a picture, for instance, a screenshot of video, and say that, oh, look, she's trying to grab onto the shield. I was trying to hold myself up. And if they can say, oh, look, she's hitting the officer, or trying to pull him down, or whatever they said, and yet I'm telling him to stop spraying me in my face, it just stopped. But they want to turn all that, like I'm out to get them, like I'm out to, to beat the police, 
in all that beating, all of that, I, I did not punch an officer. I didn't fight back against the police who, who abused me. And if they can lie about me, I know for a fact that they can lie about everybody else that was there that day. Before the smoke of tear gas had cleared at the Capitol, the decision was made at the highest levels of government to hunt down everyone who was at the Capitol on January 6. The FBI and the Department of Justice began rounding up suspects the very next day in the most far-flung investigation of its kind. Many suspects experienced the full SWAT treatment as federal tactical teams in armored vehicles prowled through suburban neighborhoods. Front doors were blown off and flashbangs tossed inside. Family members were greeted with the laser sights of M4 carbines trained on their bodies. Even children were handcuffed as agents sorted out who was who. Some 850 people have been arrested for primarily misdemeanor charges, such as entering and remaining in a restricted building, and even parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a Capitol building. Some defendants were denied bail and still sit behind bars. To be charged, even with trespassing, meant being shunned by the community as traitors or insurrectionists. Some were fired for their jobs, based only on allegations. For one of the defendants, Matthew Perna, the pressure was too much. He pled guilty to a felony charge of obstructing Congress, and also misdemeanor charges. For these, he was facing over 20 years in prison, and he decided to end his own life. His aunt, Jerry Perna, said the charges that led to his death were unjustified. The way they're going after people is absolutely insane. And then on the other hand, on the other side of the coin, you have people committing crimes, blatantly robbing and looting stores in California and places, and they're not even being arrested. You can steal up to $900 and not even be arrested, but you can't walk into the Capitol, the people's house, with police saying, come on in. Nothing about this is normal. I don't put anything past them at this point. I don't. Um, they're out for blood, and they're getting it. They appear to be winning. I believe with Matt and with many other of the J6ers, I believe that this DOJ jumped the gun on these felony charges with many of them. And I believe they just randomly passed these charges out and then decided to look for the evidence. And in Matt's case and so many others, they simply didn't have the evidence. But it was a roller coaster of emotion from that point on, constant. And he was watching the other cases and how they were pleading, comparing his case to their case. Every time he had a hearing, it was delayed. He would gear himself up mentally, prepare himself, and they would delay it. Sometimes they would tell him when it would be, sometimes it was indefinitely delayed. Or it was um, discovery. They don't have enough, you know, they're still going through the discovery process. And that was mentally exhausting for him. It contributed immensely to Matt's suicide. It did. Um, 
It was a head game that they were playing with him. They're playing it with the rest of the J6ers. They're playing head games, and, and, and it's working. Matt was a very kind-hearted person. He had a smile that would light up a room. He was very thoughtful. He loved talking to people. That was a gift of his. He could sit down with a stranger in a coffee shop and just start having a conversation with them. And he loved learning about their lives and where they were from and how they grew up, especially the elderly. With people, by the end of the conversation, he had made a new friend. And Matt didn't just make friends casually. He kept these people in his life. He had thousands of friends. Matt wrote beautiful paragraphs on every postcard talking about life and how he was enjoying his surroundings. And he sent probably thousands in his lifetime. There's no getting past this and there's nothing anybody could say that's gonna make it any better. <laughs> We miss him so much. And we will forever be heartbroken. Many of the defendants from January 6th are still awaiting trial, and many have been held in continuous solitary confinement, a form of incarceration deemed by the ACLU as a human rights abuse. Epic Times reporter and host of Facts Matter, Roman Balmakov, spoke with January 6th prisoner Jake Lang over the phone to learn about their conditions. I'm in solitary confinement over here. So in D.C. and in Alexandria, I've been in solitary confinement. Um, and right now I'm in administrative segregation, it's called, and uh, they won't let me go to general population because um, they want to torture me into uh, trying to take some kind of uh, decade-long plea deal. Uh, 108 months is the most recent plea deal I was offered, a uh, decade in prison for defending saving lives and defending the Constitution. It's cruel and unusual punishment, and it's uh, specifically um, because they want to send a signal out to the rest of the Americans. If you ever dare to stand um, for your Constitution and for your civil liberties, that we will call you domestic terrorists, we'll drag you away from your home and your family and your community, we will put you in deplorable conditions, um, torture you into ridiculous plea deals, and meanwhile drag your name through the mud throughout all mainstream media and call you white supremacist and all these domestic terrorists and violent insurrectionists and all this ridiculous nonsense. Um, they're using us to uh, punish, uh, pre-punish us before trial and to send a signal out to the American people that um, any resistance uh, that you have to tyranny will be treated as, uh, as I'm being treated right now. And so um, that's why I believe that they're torturing us, um, January 6ers. Were the FBI raids warranted? Is it justified that many defendants have been held in solitary confinement while awaiting trial? Are the long prison sentences mainly for non-violent crimes reasonable? This would depend on what actually took place and just how much of a threat the crowd actually was. Now on the Trump side, we do know there was some violence. How significant was the violence on the Trump side? Well, it certainly can't be denied. Some of the lo locales where there was some instigation, but uh, there was clearly enough trouble from Trump supporters uh, because it's caught on security video where th things were hurled at the police, pieces of furniture, a 16-foot aluminum ladder was they tried to use as a battering ram. Where does a 16-foot aluminum ladder come from on the Capitol grounds during a protest? Uh, never quite figured that one out. You saw mops and whisk brooms and uh, 
office desk drawers, uh, large plastic garbage cans, and a, a stereo speaker, a fairly heavy one, hurled in at the police. We do know that normal, normal riots often have projectiles thrown. We've seen BLM and Antifa riots with uh, firebombs, Molotov cocktails, you know, of course, bricks, other, other objects like that. Was there anything that severe at this protest? There were no incendiaries thrown. Uh, they did uh, arrest a fellow who had brought Molotov cocktails up within a block at the Capitol, but then didn't do anything with them. So of all the Trump supporters, I mean, what was the worst thing that we saw of violence on behalf of the Trump side? There was a line of police uh, that were below a concrete barrier, and they were climbing over. The police were moving out and climbing over. And uh, a man at least wearing Trump gear, I believe was a Trump supporter, He took a running start and put his shoulder into the back of this police officer with full force. And the police officer went head over heels and landed. I think he was caught by his colleagues who were down below, but it, it was, I'm sure that could have caused an injury. And the video is quite shocking. So that was clearly just wanton violence. This was not a reaction to anything. It's very clear. You can see he stops, seems to be making a conscious decision. And then wasn't a sprint, but it was a pretty good gallop before he made contact. Now, aside from him, were actions like what this individual carried out, were they representative of the rest of the crowd? Was anything like that common? No, I don't believe so. I think your typical uh, rally goer that day, even the ones that went over to the Capitol, uh, were more curious than anything. Now, certainly enough of them got riled up when you're, you're having projectiles fired into your midst, but that particular incident, you did not see a large number of those things. Uh, and I believe they have, they have arrested all of the people, because it's pretty, pretty easy to spot, because uh, when those things are done uh, on video. So, uh, but I think overall it was a, s a small percentage of the people that were there, which is why you were hearing people saying, I was there and I didn't, I didn't see any of this stuff. Of course, violence on January 6th was not limited to just fighting and riot control. In the aftermath of January 6th, four police officers who were present that day committed suicide. Yet there were also people who died that day. After the incidents on January 6th, one of the first stories that a lot of the media were reporting was this officer, Sicknick, they reported had been beaten to death by protesters using, I believe, a fire extinguisher. What was the real story with Officer Sicknick? Well, the real story is his death was ruled by the medical examiner as uh, from natural causes, that he had a stroke. And um, there was no fire extinguisher thrown at his head. But we continue to hear this used even in prosecutions and our own president uh, over this you know, recent weekend at a commencement said the rioters killed two police on January 6th. They're saying two police now. Who is the other police officer? We'd have to ask him. It, uh, but these things just keep being repeated. We've even seen this brought up in court hearings. And a couple of times we've had defense attorneys speak up and say, whoa, wait a minute, that's not true. Uh, four people died January 6th. They were all Trump supporters. Officer Sicknick died the next day. And his case um, was not a result of being struck with any object. So just to review then, five deaths total. 
from January 6th. Officer Sicknick appeared to die afterwards from health complications. We know Ashley Babbitt was shot and killed. Roseanne Boyland appeared to have died during the incident, although it was ruled as amphetamines. And then two individuals who had heart attacks or strokes. Uh, it appears that it was triggered very likely by munitions that officers had used against them. It certainly could have been. I mean, they were close enough that that, that would be a concern. The worst thing that happened that day was the execution of Ashley Babbitt at near point blank range by Lieutenant Michael Byrd, who was exonerated in any alleged investigation, and the deaths of three other Trump supporters, Benjamin Phillips, Kevin Greeson, and Roseanne Boylan, who died, all three of them, very likely due to excessive police force that day. That's another thing the January 6th committee and the DOJ are completely burying, so to speak. U.S. Capitol Police Lieutenant Michael Byrd who was off to Ashley's left when she climbed into the window. And he was fairly tight into the wall. Would have been difficult to see that he was there. And he has spoken publicly that he warned her, you know, he yelled at her to stop. You cannot hear that on any of the audio. It would be arguably very difficult because the, the crowd noise coming from that hallway, it was a din, it was very loud. But he had his gun trained on her as soon as he appears in the frame in the video, you know, it's not just is drawn and he's in shooting stance. And then he advances forward and lunges and then he fires at her and strikes her in the, in the left shoulder. In the speaker's lobby, which is a fairly large space with marble columns, behind one of the columns that was probably 15, 20 feet uh, from where Lieutenant Byrd was, there was another officer who at almost the same instant as Lieutenant Byrd, drew his weapon into firing position. So he had trained on Ashley Babbitt coming through the window. Uh, did not fire as far as we know. You know it, the video was shot through cracked glass, so it's very difficult to, to get complete details, but it's very clear he raises his weapon into firing position, and then Lieutenant Byrd fires quite shortly after that. And as far as we know, then he, he drew down and did not did not fire, but there was a second officer by the stance he took, prepared to fire on her. It's hard to approximate the distance, but it would appear to be some eight to 10 feet away from where she was coming through the window, at which time uh, Lieutenant Byrd produced his Glock firearm and fired once without a safe backdrop because there were officers behind her and other innocent persons behind her, striking her whereupon she fell to the floor, mortally wounded. Lieutenant did not go forward and handcuff Ashley Babbitt and administer first aid. Uh, he withdrew, he's out of the picture. There was an additional officer who withdrew his weapon, again pointing it in a direction that was not a safe backdrop, but did not fire. So there's a discrepancy between the need of the lieutenant to fire when another officer didn't fire with the same circumstances. In order for lethal force to be authorized, the officer must be able to articulate that he or she was in fear of losing his life, was about to be killed or grievously injured. There is nothing I saw in that film that would indicate that that was possible or probable uh, from what unfolded. Uh, lastly, I am not aware of any firearms discharge report being written, and I'm not aware of any conclusion that stated 
that he was exonerated based on uh, a thorough internal affairs investigation, including the Graham v. Connor litmus test. The first thing that would happen immediately upon uh, a discharge of firearms would be, as I said, this now is a crime scene. And the lieutenant should have closed on the person that he shot, handcuffed that individual to prevent recovery and necessitating weapon. Next thing, apply first aid. And immediately that area should have been taped off, sealed off. It becomes a crime scene and should await the response of the crime scene investigation unit who would photograph the positions, the measurements, the forensics involved with the discharge of the firearm. A subsequent uh, discharge of firearms report would be required to be written by uh, Lieutenant Byrd. He would be placed on administrative leave with pay. His badge and ID card and firearm would be taken uh, and an internal affairs investigation would begin. Investigation is concluded. That would go to the office of the chief of police who would make a disposition in the case uh, that he, he as, the, um, as the chief, would have to make. I was shocked that the Department of Justice issued a three-paragraph uh, response to this horrific event um, based on the fact that they included in their language uh, the Graham v. Connor uh, litmus test, which is objective reasonableness. Clearly, from in any way, this was not objectively reasonable. And to use that language in defense of Lieutenant Byrd shows a conscious disregard for the facts as to how they came to that conclusion. Lieutenant Byrd's refusal to be interviewed uh, after requesting his lawyer, which never occurred. Are you willing to give us a statement today? I would prefer to have a lawyer present under uh, the, uh, the information that you just provided. That is perfectly understandable, and uh, I will not ask you to provide a statement today. I will ask you though that when you do secure counsel, uh, you have my business card and my contact information on them. If you have them reach out to me to uh, arrange for you to provide a statement when appropriate. Yes, sir. He has a duty and a responsibility to be libargered, the department to libarger him, to which requires that he answer their questions in an internal affairs investigation or face termination for refusing to answer. He has no right to withhold an answer. My conclusion was that based on what I saw and observed in the video clip, that Ashley Babbitt was murdered. She was shot and killed under color of authority by an officer who violated not only the law, but his oath and committed an arrestable offense. What happened to Ashley Babbitt um, would not be allowed to happen anywhere else in the country, let alone have the identity, the name of the police officer involved, have his name concealed from the public for months. Um, that just never happens. Another case of the media working with, the, um, with Congress to protect people uh, who, you know, are, uh, are guilty of a crime. Everyone's seen the video, I think, where Ashley Babbitt was shot. But what's not paid attention to is how she got through this window and exactly what happened. And there are these really suspicious individuals. What is suspicious about these individuals in this scene? 
Well, the number of them to begin with, uh, Ashley Babbitt, when she made her way up to the window, she was surrounded by people who fit that definition. In her immediate vicinity surrounding her, there were probably three or four. Three or four suspicious actors and 20 suspicious actors total yes. in that room, in that area. And one of them, who was an instigator, Zachary Alam, he was the one bashing the window with, with a black helmet, and he knocked out several window panes. And Ashley Babbitt kind of had a running spar with him. She was screaming at him to stop. She stepped forward, and she punched him in the face. Ashley Babbitt tried to stop this individual then, you're saying? She did. She got after the police officers who were there. Why aren't you stopping this? You know? And, you know, she's been portrayed as a, as a rioter, as a seditionist, uh, but it's very clear in the video and the audio that she was uh, very upset and trying to stop what was happening because they were bashing in the glass in the doors that lead to the uh, speaker's lobby and right onto the house floor. And then when she, I mean, her husband is totally convinced that when she does the, the punch to Zachary Alam, she had decided that she needed to escape from that hallway. That it had gotten scary, the conditions. The SWAT team was coming up the stairs and she was afraid of crowded places. That, so she decided, I have to get out of here. When she climbed up in the window, there were two suspicious actors, one on either side of her. We don't have a clear enough video angle to see if either one of them pushed her up into the window or helped her into the window, uh, but they were in that position on either side of her. And then when she was shot and fell back, again, these same several suspicious actors were right around her when she fell and was laying there. So it raises all sorts of questions. Did they, what role did they have? How did they all get there at the same time along with all these other people? And another suspicious point with all this is one of the individuals who breaks this glass is, is communicating with another one. We can watch them in the video. And then as the SWAT team is moving up the stairs, this individual goes back down the stairs and looks like he's changing his clothes. Zachary Alam did that. When he saw Ashley had been shot, he realized it. Uh, you can see on the video, he physically responds. He almost jumps back and the look of horror. He was genuinely terrified. It certainly, certainly seemed to be, even though he had created the conditions that led to that uh, by, by the violence with the helmet and the, the smashed glass. And he did, uh, he did go down the stairs and did not come back up. But there were a number of people on the stairs that we haven't been able to identify and also haven't been charged and who were familiar enough with the police to, to go up to them and say things or pat them on the back. Who they are, we, you know, we still haven't uh, figured out. But for that many unidentified people to be in a space where there was a fatality like that, uh, you know, it, it, it goes to our longer list of of burning questions. News outlets have tried framing Ashley Babbitt as having not been a peaceful protester, and House Democrats have painted her killer as a hero. Yet video evidence tells a very different story of her and of her death. Who was Ashley Babbitt? We met with her husband, Aaron Babbitt, in San Diego to learn more. Ashley just loved life. She loved herself. Nobody loved Ashley more than her. I mean, she just woke up every day wanting to take on the world and, you know, never had a task that she didn't want to conquer. And the harder it was, the more she wanted to fight for it. She loved her dogs. I mean, we had three dogs. I've lost all three of them since January 6th. 
It's been a rough 18, 19 months. What, what happened on January 6th? I understand you were not there, she went. What, what was kind of the, what did you hear from her and why she wanted to go? We were sitting on the beach in Cabo. It was Christmas day. She was looking at her phone and she said, President Trump's having a, um, a speech uh, January 6th. And I really think I want to go, um, you know, because it might be the last time I get to him talk, hear him talk, or at least, you know, for another four years. And I kind of shrugged it off, laughed it off, because, you know, we had already been on vacation. We shut our business down for two weeks between Christmas and New Year's. And, but when Ashley has her mindset on something, she's going to do it. And that's the relationship we had. You know, I was, we always wanted the other to do what made them happy. Yeah, so why did, you, why did you decide not to go as well? Oh, I mean, we have a business. I was not political at that point. The Aaron sitting in front of you on January 5th is completely the Aaron, different Aaron sitting in front of you now. I was just well over politics. That was more her thing. And obviously, I, you know, I voted and supported for President Trump, and I will again, but it just wasn't my thing. She was having the best day of her life, and you could see that. She put on a Facebook Live video of her walking down the, the inaugural path on the way to the Capitol, and she specifically says that I just got to see President Trump speak, and I can tell you as big of a fan she was and a supporter that she would never leave until he was fully out of sight. Now, did you receive any messages from her when she was in the Capitol building? Yeah, I mean, I got a couple texts, but it was just, you know, I'm inside the Capitol and I was looking at like, you what? And I turned my TV on real quick. Everybody was inside the House chamber just going about their normal business. And I remember taking a picture of my TV and going, they don't look very concerned. When the news that she was shot came out, what was your reaction? Uh, I watched it live. I was, I was watching it happen. Um, I had to, out here in California, we were still heavily locked down for COVID. I had to make a gym uh, reservation, and I had a short day that day, so I got home at like 11.30 our time, um, and I got a call somewhere just after 12 saying that uh, it, it was from a person that I really don't talk to. I mean, him and Ashley's wife were really good friends. We're, we're buddies when we're around each other, but that's about it. He said that his wife had um, thought that she had seen Ashley on TV and looked like she'd been hurt. There was something about a door or a window. I could hear the tremble in his voice, and I hung the phone up. I walked outside, you know, out into the living room, and I turned my TV on. And the very first image I saw was Ashley laying on the ground, with blood, you know, blood coming out. The lights went out. I collapsed. I came to. There was there were people in my house. Um, I knew them, but I don't remember them coming in. At that point, I mean, my life really just changed forever. I mean, I had to, my phone started ringing, and I'm, you know, thinking, hey, I'm getting info now. And it's, hey, this is so-and-so from this TV station in San Diego. I, 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 you're not who I want to talk to. I'm trying to find out what happened to my wife, you know, and I'm, I have to answer these phone calls. I was bound to the same use of force continuum that those police are in D.C. I worked at a security and nuclear power plant. I knew the steps. I could spit them out verbatim when I was working there. And I, so I knew that it was a bad shoot. And I knew immediately, like, hey, something really, really bad just happened from what I saw. But it was probably a span of like a month that I was just terrified. I didn't want to watch it again. What I had seen, it just was so traumatic. I didn't want to watch it happen again, but then I'd like 
run into random people that I knew, grown men, customers, and they'd just be sobbing on my shoulder. And I'm like, I don't think I've really seen it all in, in its entirety. Uh, so I had to make that jump into um, basically watching and looking at every picture that no husband should ever have to look at. But I had to, because I had to harden my skin. I had to thicken my skin over it. So I got to the point to where I just, I, you know, rip the Band-Aid off every morning. I'll search Ashley's name on Twitter. I'll read all the bad stuff. I'll, you know, whoever wants to put a picture up, I've already seen it, you know. So it just, I do that and it got me to the point to where nobody can rock me. You know, nobody's gonna say it to my face. They're not gonna, you know, it's just, it's just how it is. Ashley Babbitt was the only person confirmed to have been killed on January 6th, but another death also has video evidence suggesting that DC Metropolitan Police may have played a role, that of Roseanne Boyland. Roseanne Boyland was part of a crowd that had gathered in the tunnel entrance on the Lower West Terrace as one of the entrances to the Capitol, and the police in trying to drive the people out, unleashed some sort of chemical irritant that appeared to displace the oxygen. The witnesses described feeling that the oxygen had been sucked out of the air and they couldn't breathe. Because people could not draw a breath in, they very quickly went unconscious. And Roseanne was one of the first to fall right at the tunnel entrance. She went down. A number of people who continued to push out landed on top of her. In almost an instant, she was under five or six people deep. There is a duty on the part of police once they push somebody out of the tunnel or attempting to push them out of the tunnel and they fall to render aid or to get them up and get them out of the tunnel. It's incumbent upon them to do that. The video is quite shocking. It looks like a waterfall going down the steps leading away from this entrance. People just tumbling out. And at that point, the police were, were pushing. They were pushing everyone out after deploying the gas. And so you had a, a pile of humanity. And the people at the bottom, of course, were being crushed. And Roseanne was terrified. She was calling out, someone help me, someone help me. And another uh, bystander held her hand while she became unconscious. My assessment of the use of gas in a tunnel, a confined space, is as follows. The objective of the use of gas is to disperse or to arrest those who fail to disperse. In a confined space like a tunnel, when you discharge gas, you suck up the oxygen. You cause a panic reaction, which is an increased breathing, which ingest an ingestion of gas, causes pain and problems that cause people to pass out. So Roseanne's trapped under these people. She collapsed when, the, again, the air had been sucked out of the room by some kind of chemical irritant. How did the police react to her? The crowd and many, many people in it were begging police to help. They were pointing down to Roseanne on the ground, saying, we have someone down. She needs help, please. One gentleman, uh, please save her, please, please. And the reaction was silence. There was no reaction. And if there was any, it was uh, one of the officers kicked a couple of fairly large gentlemen in the hindquarters and kicked them on top of her. So she had more people land on her after that. I saw individuals who were screaming for assistance to be given to her, that she was dying. 
please save a life. Those kinds of comments. I saw one individual who was struck with a baton and bleeding, who was screaming for help to be rendered to her, and nothing was forthcoming from law enforcement. The crowd was desperate. It's not fun to watch somebody die, and they knew she was in mortal peril. And, and when their entreaties were ignored, it turned to anger. Now we have this video footage of Roseanne Boyland being beaten by police. At what stage did this take place? Well, she had been down possibly five minutes, uh, and there was a battle going on at the, the front of the police line because people were, appeared to be trying to protect her. And one of the officers who was just new up to the front of the line, she had just come up, she attacked one of the protesters, or she struck him, I shouldn't, uh, in the arm and struck him again and missed. And then, inexplicably, she turned her physical assault on Roseanne Boylan, who was, had been unconscious for some time. In analyzing the film, I saw a police officer from DC Metro with a stick, that was a walking stick, strike a downed Roseanne Boyland three times. I was horrified, twice in the head and once in the chest. We don't train officers to hit people in the head with a blunt object. It's to be avoided. We teach other targets, arms, legs, things like that. Moreover, we don't teach officers are not trained to strike a downed person. My conclusion in reviewing the officer's behavior was that they were untrained, they were not properly equipped, they were not properly commanded and supervised, and that they did a reactive, fear-struck or anger-struck tactics where they punished people rather than arresting or dispersing them. It is definitely a crime that was committed by Officer Morris when she struck a downed person. What she should have done is again handcuffed the individual and rendered first aid. Yes, it's assault under color of authority with intent to do great bodily harm. She was seriously attempting to injure Roseanne Boylan by striking her when she was in a down position and unconscious. The officer tried to continue, but she was. was uh, swinging so hard the stick flew out of her hand so she had lost her weapon and then a colleague of hers behind her pulled her back into the Capitol itself and the entreaties for Roseanne continued a gentleman stepped up was holding a medical crutch an aluminum crutch to basically block police he started out his role in this by asking people to pray and you can see this on video he turns around and he's shouting at people to stop and pray because he thought people were dying and indeed that's what turned out to be the case in a short while after that he is at the front line this crutch just flies in from off camera lands at his feet so he ended up picking that up he said i'd try to make myself as big as possible to be a barrier between the police and the crowd. And as he did this, some of the bystanders pulled Roseanne down the steps and started CPR. I mean, he's charged with, uh, with multiple uh, counts, but in the media and even in his own fam extended family, uh, he got pretty widespread condemnation. You know, he was labeled as, as a, an insurrectionist uh, in that he was assaulting the police. You can look at that video and you can draw other conclusions, but his input was key. He was widely condemned. Short time after Luke Coffey 
held the crutch up and the bystanders tried doing CPR. They picked her up and set her down right in front of the police. You watch the video and it almost seemed to be like, here is a person in need of help, help her. And uh, eventually an officer did step forward and grabbed her by the foot, but they, they dragged her out. And it reminded me of deer hunting. You drag out a, a deer carcass and you know her arms went up over her head. She lost a good bit of her clothing in this process, uh, but they pulled her into the Capitol. Then she did receive emergency care, and I think heroic care. The officers that were inside didn't hesitate. Unfortunately, we're pretty sure she was deceased by that time, but that did give that family great comfort to see that not all the officers were indifferent to what was going on with her. Imagine if the American people actually saw just what happened to Roseanne Boylan and these officers who keep portraying themselves as heroes that day when they were the villains, and I've said this over and over, the people who acted most violently on January 6th were Capitol and D.C. Metro Police. People don't want to hear that. I think that's why you have so many men who were at the mouth of that tunnel trying to protect her and others who were on the ground, others who were being beaten by police officers. That's why you have so many of those men under pretrial detention orders trying to torture them into plea deals because they don't want trials and they don't want the evidence of what happened in that tunnel to come out at trial. And so I think that's why you've got at least six or seven men who were there who were also, who were pitting police officers. I mean, I'm not, that is a fact. But when you see law enforcement, when you see thugs disguised as police officers, you're not, you can defend yourself and others around you. And the fact that even the video that most of the public and certainly the media has seen, that they have not questioned why those police officers did not stop what they were doing, clear an area, and attempt to resuscitate her, help her, or get her out of that crowd, um, that they dragged her back through the tunnel. Uh, and I've heard descriptions of what she looked like being dragged through that tunnel. Again, that's why they don't want the surveillance video released, right? I mean, you have thousands of hours of it. The DC medical examiner ruled it was accidental and ascribed it to amphetamine intoxication. She had had a prescription for Adderall for ADHD, which she had been on for probably 10 years. It was a drug she was certainly used to, and there was no indication she had any distress up until the point she fell, but that was his finding. And the, the family, the Boylan family, immediately uh, felt they needed to challenge that. And they did hire their own pathologist to review the autopsy. And that person came to, came to a different conclusion and said that uh, amphetamine intoxication was clearly not the reason for her death. And seemed to acknowledge that the circumstances she was in with the crowd and being crushed and this violence going on around her and uh, and pepper gel just dripping from on high, uh, and she's probably inhaling some of this stuff, that those could have been very easily aggravating factors. Video footage of protesters fighting with police at the doors of the Capitol building have been among the more common scenes used by media outlets, trying to paint the protesters as violent. Yet the full context of that scene is often left out. When the video evidence is shown in its full context, it's clear the crowd is trying to rescue Roseanne Boylan as police beat her unconscious body. To get the deeper context of the crowd and what took place, we met with Luke Coffey, the man who pushed the police back using a crutch. 
which then allowed other protesters to pull Roseanne from the tunnel. I was walking back to the hotel and I was approached by three different men, kind of younger guys that were running away from the Capitol and were basically telling uh, people that we need patriots at the Capitol. There are people dying inside. We need patriots. But it was, I thought it was strange because they were running away from the Capitol and we were still at least a mile probably away. I was prodded at that point by the Lord really to, to, I wanted to go up there to the front and try to stop the chaos and confusion and, and wh whatever was going on. I didn't know, I didn't know anything at this point. So initially when they approached me, it was, it was, uh, I, I felt it would just, it stood out as a very strange occurrence that they were um, trying to get people to go up there and why were they running away from it? It was, it was bizarre really. And I had a, a friend that is, uh, I would consider a conspiracy theorist by nature. And he warned me that there could be a false flag incident that day, be very careful. And it, that's immediately what I thought that these gentlemen were trying to escalate pro provocateurs that were working to get people up there. I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, go up and to the front and pray. And it was very clear voice. I think there are three voices in our head, our own, the Holy Spirit, if you know Jesus, and demonic spirits that can influence you. I know it was not my own voice, and it was the Lord that very much told me, and I felt it was a prodding in my heart to go up there, regardless of the risk, and just pray and, and pray for peace. As I was walking up there, it did. I felt like there were saints you know, that were making eye contact, going out of their way to make eye contact with me. And this is a crowd of 20 to 30,000 people, but it was certain people that were just still and peaceful and just making, they'd give me a little nod or just make eye contact with me. And, you know, the eyes are the window of the soul. And it was something incredible that really has stood out um, to me. And I haven't told a lot of people. It was an overcast day for the most part, but the clouds opened up and I did see these strips of paper coming down. They were verses that were encouraged me to continue on and I don't think other people saw them and I know I wasn't hallucinating, um, but it was prodding me to continue on. And, uh, and again, people can think I'm nuts, but until you experience these things, uh, you, you may be a doubter. So when I saw the, the verses coming down, it only solidified what God had told me to go up there. They were at one point, several points, at several points they were, the crowd was out there singing Amazing Grace. It was a picturesque experience that was, I felt like God gave me a glimpse of uh, heaven in this chaos and confusion that was going around was this beautiful, peaceful thing happening, which, uh, which I, I know was a gift and and uh, it was truly incredible and and that's what led me to, to go up to the uh, West Side Terrace when I went up there they started deploring the tear gas people started falling backwards on top of each other and were trying to get away because they couldn't breathe from the tear gas I saw multiple women that I tried to help that were on the bottom of three to four people piled deep and I was 
with no success, was able to pull them out. So at that point, I went to the crowd and was saying, we got to stop this. We got to pray. Roseanne was one of the people I saw up at the top of the steps that I was trying to help out, along with several other women that were underneath. And people were screaming out that they couldn't breathe. And it was very traumatic. The gas made everybody freak out and, and caused more chaos. And uh, so everyone had fallen on top of each other. And so I went up to the front telling them, everyone stop and pray, because I really believe people were going to die. I thought people were going to perish underneath that, that crowd because it was just jam packed. People crying out maybe for their last breaths. At that point is where I did hear the voice of the Lord say, Luke, go stand in the gap. And, uh, and at the same, around the same time, these three other guys were talking about that we need to do something so this doesn't happen again. So this, so to deescalate it, to, to prevent it from happening again. The couple of these guys were like, I, I don't want to risk going up there. And, and I once said, I got my family to think of. And I said, I'm single, I'll go up there. And, and uh, so I tried to walk as peacefully and slowly as I could. Um, and go right up to the line of, of police. And I didn't know how many there were. I did see that they were swinging and it was violent and there were people on both sides swinging. And so I said, stop immediately. Stop guys, we're all Americans, stop. I was immediately sprayed with pepper spray directly to my face and was being hit as well. So I couldn't see well, obviously, but I looked down and happened to see a crutch that I guess had just flown up there and landed at my feet. And so I was prompted to pick it up and put it over my head. The most peaceful thing I could do is make myself big and try to make a wall between both parties. I don't know if it's audible in the recordings, but I said, in, in the name of Jesus, Lord, please stop this. And then I turned around and said it to the crowd, stop, everyone stop. And then I was hit in the back, which prompted me to turn around and put the crutch in a defensive manner uh, in front of me. It was a fighter, I can say it was a fight or flight response to being uh, attacked and, and, you know, the crutch was never meant to be used in, in any other way than to defend myself or peace, to peacefully make a stand and then to defend myself. There was a reason and it wasn't a coincidence. And I do, I, I don't believe in coincidences. I believe they're, they're fingerprints on our lives, evidence of God's greater plan. And so I wasn't, that surprised that that's where Roseanne was um, and I, I just wish more could have been done to save her life. One of the biggest crossroad moments of my life was first experiencing getting hit by a car with the love of my life over my shoulder and uh, her perishing that evening. What I learned from that experience is that God is the author of our lives. He is the great um, director. He is uh, he is in control, he's sovereign, he's providential. And God used what was the, my worst nightmare to, show, to really show up in, in, in my life. And so it was the, that was the, hard, it's, it's weird to say, but it was the greatest moment and the worst moment in my life when I lost her. So when, for, to have another woman in my proximity um, is very, I don't know what, what to say about it. 
The FBI reached out and I immediately called him back and told him the story just like I've told you. Told him that I did have contact with the police, and but I was very much trying to break it up. And, and even he said, Mr. Coffee, it looks like you were trying to de-escalate things. He said, you're not a suspect at this point. And for about 14 or 15 days, I was told I was not a suspect. Initially, he said, if, if they charge you anything, it will be a misdemeanor, disorderly conduct. But he said, they may not charge you at all. You know, it says you were, it looks, it looks like you were trying to de-escalate things. Or, <clears throat> so, you know, 10 or 12 days later, he said, Mr. Coffey's not looking good for you. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, we've seen some new evidence and uh, we're gonna need you to uh, come in and talk to us. And I said, well, let me let my lawyer talk to you. Didn't have a lawyer at the time, but I quickly got one and uh, hired one and, and uh, who negotiated what became me turning myself in to the FBI in Dallas. I spent 45 days in a prison down here in Texas, Limestone County. I've had two plea deals come in, one of which was four to five years, pleading guilty to a felony assault with a deadly weapon, the crutch being the deadly weapon. When I met with my lawyers most recently, I was able to go to Midland, Texas, where they are for several days, and they had a potential plea deal that was similar to another defendant that was eight to 14 months, but still pleading guilty to a felony assault with a deadly weapon. I just know I feel called to fight for truth, not for just myself, but for other J6ers. The only thing they can do is kill me or put me back in prison, and I'm not scared either way. So I'm ready to do whatever God calls me and whatever he wills it for my life. It's my absolute full intention to go to trial. One of the defense attorneys for the Oath Keepers filed a motion that identified 80, what he calls suspicious actors and material witnesses. These are people who have uh, not been arrested or charged or even identified. They're only identified by somewhat whimsical hashtags that the Sedition Hunters website assigned to them. And they were present in concentration in certain places where there was trouble, including at the, on the east side at the Columbus Doors. So he went through and, uh, and he gave them numbers. And you'd see when the police line was breached, the breach point included, it was almost exclusively the suspicious actors. Attorney Brad Geyer, when he filed this motion and he watched this over months, the video, that a lot of these fellows worked in two-man teams, tactical teams. And then they were also seen later up on the terrace when they were trying to get into the Columbus doors. He raised a big question, which would be exculpatory for a lot of defendants, that if there was anything that was staged, that calls a lot of things into question. And so he's trying to identify those people. He wants to use facial recognition using the government's own databases because these folks are not listed anywhere. And there's been no explanation. Uh, prosecutors have adopted a policy of just no, no comment outside of court filings. So uh, we have asked, you know, can you explain this? And there has been no response. Obviously, there will be in, in responding to the motions at some point. Um, so we, we don't know uh, and how those folks got there. But it compared to people who were charged, and some of them very quickly, some 
on January 7th uh, of 2021 um, to have people unidentified and that large a group that don't even have a name, much less be arrested or charged. That strikes me as very unusual. They were in various places. At the first breach point in a smaller number on the uh, the east steps leading up to the rotunda, a much larger group, and then there were others that were at the location where Ashley Babbitt was shot. Pretty substantial, more than 20 that we've identified. For the most part, people that have not been arrested or even identified. Some of them are listed on the FBI's most wanted site, uh, but we still don't know who they are. One of the most suspicious individuals, one who's shown up a lot of headlines, is Ray Epps. What happened with Ray Epps? We see him a lot on video from January 5th and 6th. On the night before, he was amidst the Trump supporters and appears to be encouraging people to not just go to the Capitol the next day, but to go into the Capitol. Tomorrow, we need to go into the Capitol. Into the Capitol. And got in some verbal sparring with some Trump supporters who were chanting, Fed, Fed, Fed. Had him pegged as an agent because I think they knew it was an illegal thing to do, potentially. He went around that crowd encouraging people to go into the Capitol. Because of the stakes here, we've got to go into the Capitol. Uh, there were plenty of people charged that day for encouraging others to go inside the Capitol. And Ray was never arrested or charged with anything. Wait, so they're going after people for entering the Capitol building, but one of the individuals who demonstrated, you know, premeditated entry to the Capitol and was encouraging others was never actually charged. That obviously raised a lot of questions and I know uh, he denied being any kind of an informant uh, working for the government um, but yet we see him quite a few times after that uh, and this was well before the president had finished speaking at the first breach point, you know, he is seen interacting with some of the people that pushed over the barriers. And one of the men charged with the first breach, he was talking in his ear, hard to say what he was saying. He, he claims that he was telling the young man to back off. But what the fellow actually did is he turned around and dumped over the, the barrier and the group was off to the races. He was seen again at the next breach point, And again, just backed off of the front line. Uh, so he, he clearly had a presence in the prosecutors have promised to explain and give more information about him. Uh, back in March, they, they said they would do that. That hasn't happened yet. So, you know, it just it leaves a lot of questions and speculation uh, of what a lot of the defense attorneys are calling suspicious actors. Who is this individual we're looking at in this piece of footage? Well, a radio journalist from Michigan was shooting video that day at the Capitol. What he captured were two most charitably called suspicious actors, but they are dressed in such a way that led him to believe that they were government agents. And one of them, after the windows had been broken by a protester, it was encouraging people to, to pull the rest of the glass out and go inside. Bobby Powell, who was the journalist that had shot it, and he has his camera rolling, he told him that would be illegal and that wouldn't be a good idea. He warned people off not to go into that window and then he turned his camera around and he caught this agent or suspicious actor pulling a large pane of glass out, this tempered glass. It kind of folds in, into itself, crunch onto the ground. When he realized he was being filmed, he quickly dropped it. It seems apparent on the video that he did not want to be seen doing what he, what he just did. So he pulled in a protester 
and started blaming him. He said, what are you doing breaking that window? The poor fellow that was being accused didn't know what was going on. And then he gave him a couple of really good shoves and cocked his arm like he was going to punch him. We don't know. His uh, facial image is not on any of the Sedition Hunter's sites or the FBI's most wanted site. But he clearly was committing criminal damage to property, uh, and he has not been charged. So it, you know, again, it raises a question of why. Have we not been able to, to discover his identity because his face was covered and he was wearing dark glasses. Who's the other individual captured in this footage? At the nearby Columbus doors, these giant bronze ornamental doors, we had this second suspicious actor who was holding the door open, the inside door, with a wooden pole. He just stood there and had, you know, it was like a fairly thick wooden dowel holding it open for a pretty good chunk of time. And he was also pushing people into the entryway. In fact, the journalist who shot this said he got a very strong shove that this guy was, hold the line, hold the line, and was pushing people in. He probably would have been there longer, except he, he got a, a dose of tear gas in his face and was put out of commission. And then we don't see him again on that video. But making it easier for people to get into the Capitol and encouraging them with a good shove, again, raises questions about who is this fellow. In addition to this, so the guy's trying to push people through. These are captured at the same time by the same journalist. Also, the individual trying to, again, opening the window up, is even encouraging people to enter, I believe, as well? Yes. What's he saying? Well, he, he said, why don't you all uh, open the rest of it up? Why don't you guys open up the rest of it? Because I think that would probably be illegal. He just came out of the blue. He was off to the side or behind the journalist who was busy picking up the broken glass. I'm pretty sure that's why he wheeled his camera around, is to catch it, because while he was telling him this, uh, while the, uh, the, the suspicious actor was encouraging him, he was busy pulling the glass out. You could hear it crinkling while he's saying these things. So. Um, you know, and again, it was just encouraging people to do what we we're told they're not supposed to do is trespass in the Capitol. I remember hearing um, from previous rallies and other news that Antifa, previous rallies even, uh, would infiltrate and say one day they're going to do something and they'll be dressed as Trump supporters and do something to make us look bad. Before she ended up at the, the mouth of the tunnel, uh, there was a window nearby that was being attacked with hammers. I think there was even a crowbar that was used. And one of the times that, that an individual stepped up and was trying to smack at this window. Everyone's yelling Antifa, but no one's stopping him. So um, I just didn't give it a second thought, and I ran toward the man who was breaking out the window. And right before I make it to him, somebody else jumps up and takes him down from breaking the window. But as he does that, there's a group of probably two, at least, men that pull him off of the man that was breaking the window. As soon as I make it there, I grab the guy that was smashing the window, and I pull him down. And next thing you know, people were standing back up after we scuffled. And I'm like, we don't do that. Trump supporters, we don't do that. Then there's other people, no, we're all on the same team. I'm like, no, no, we're not. Who brings something like that to a Trump rally, let alone to break out the Capitol window? That, that's not us. 
The second man, um, I go to reach for him to pull him down and grab his backpack. And as I do that, two or more men grab me and they go to pull me off of him. And I come around and I reach with my other hand and I push this man's head. And then there's this big like argument that ensues. And a man from like nowhere jumps up there with a bullhorn thing like, get her out of here, get her out of here. And there's, I felt instantly like, they're gonna kill me or do something to me. And I, and I later, um, I'm just like scared. Some of the biggest names we've heard when it comes to, you know, the violent groups involved in January 6th was the Oath Keepers. Uh, this is of course, you know, one of the militias in the United States and one that's very well known. And they're really one of the highlights of the case against the Trump supporters on that day. What do we know about their case? They're the, really the centerpiece of the prosecution on January 6th, um, accused of going there to prevent the counting of the electoral votes by force and violence if necessary, according to prosecutors. Uh, but we had an incident on the east side of the Capitol that in a very dramatic way counters that narrative and that belief where they are assisting the police. There was an amateur videographer from Florida who captured an officer of the U.S. Capitol Police came out of the building, out of the Columbus doors, where a crowd was trying to get inside. He was wearing a red Trump MAGA hat. And he came down to the Oath Keepers and sought them out and said he needed help. This is all captured on video, this discussion. When he makes it clear he needs help getting officers out of the Capitol who are fearful for their safety, you can see the Oath Keepers' faces. Just, let's go, let's go. And so they take him and they go back up those stairs in a military stack formation and they go up to the Capitol uh, Columbus doors and they have to explain who they are, but eventually they are let in. In a short while, they come out with 16 police officers crat, uh, clad in riot gear, and they take them down the steps to join a police line outside. So they went in and got them and brought them out, and they formed a space in the crowd to take them down the stairs. It's somewhat remarkable because the crowd, one woman was hugging every one of them that came out of the building. Others are thanking them. There wasn't any attacking uh, done on that. but. The Oath Keepers are very quick to point out that's part of their mission. So many of them are actually law enforcement officers, or they served in the military, or they're retired, uh, and that, you know, they were there that day doing security for various events. So it, to them it's no surprise, but it, it, it paints a very different picture of the group, uh, and these same individuals uh, are charged with a seditious conspiracy. Have we seen any evidence suggesting that the claims of seditious conspiracy were accurate? The evidence that's been put forth by the prosecutors certainly shows that these fellows communicated with each other leading up to the day and, and on the day. Uh, phone calls, texts, things like that. The rub comes in how do you interpret that? What was in the minds of the Oath Keepers? And that's going to, in seditious conspiracy, that's what it's going to come down to. Were they of the mindset to go there to breach the Capitol and stop the electoral votes from being counted? They will quickly say, no, we were not. Uh, we were there to do security. And they did bring a pretty good sized uh, cache of arms with them that were stored in Virginia. But they were of the belief that President Trump might enact the Insurrection Act and call up militia to counter Antifa if there was Antifa violence. And so they were prepared for that eventuality. 
But, but they did not bring that with them to the Capitol grounds no. that day? No, they did not bring weapons. There were a couple of groups that went in, but both of those groups ended up assisting Capitol Police. This, uh, this incident on the stairs was just one of, uh, one of three times that day where Oath Keepers helped the police. The second major incident, uh, there was a Capitol Police officer who was guarding stairs that were going down to the lower level and he got into a screaming match with the bystanders, protesters, uh, and it got very personal and very heated. The Oath Keepers came onto this scene just outside the rotunda and got in between the combatants and de-escalated it, made sure the officer knew he is safe. They were gonna make sure that nobody could attack him. There were just a couple of gentlemen who were just over the top, separating them and calming them down. And then they escorted the officer to a police line where his brother officers were, removed him from that situation. Several of the Oath Keepers who were part of that have said they are convinced that was within a few seconds of a shooting. He had an M4 rifle. There is audio footage of some of the back and forth between them, but not with the weapon. I believe he disputes that and minimizes their role in helping, but you can see that they are in between at least trying to de-escalate. It's against the narrative that has developed against the Oath Keepers. So that's two incidents. What was the third incident where they helped the police? There was an incident where they were asked to guard a broken window to keep people from coming in. And I don't think there were a large number of, of Oath Keepers involved in that. As long as they were asked, they did guard that window. Uh, so those were three incidents that we know of uh, where they, they lended assistance. Hmm which does challenge the narrative, again, that they went there with some kind of seditious intent. Capitol Police were either passively allowing people into the Capitol building or were lashing out at the crowd with sometimes extreme violence. Meanwhile, many of the suspicious actors who were key instigators of the crowd were never arrested. These facts raise serious questions over who made the calls on security that day. And more importantly, what was then-President Donald Trump's role? Cash Patel was the acting chief of staff at the Pentagon under Trump, and now hosts Cash's Corner with the Epic Times. On January 6, he was a go-between on communications with Trump and the request for security on January 6. He was called in the January 6 committee to testify on what took place. We met with Cash in Washington to find out who made the calls on security and what happened behind closed doors at the White House. One thing everybody's wondering about January 6th mm. is who was in charge of security that day? Well, that's a great question. And the simple answer is the protection of the Capitol and members of Congress falls to law enforcement. And that is specifically the Capitol Police, Metropolitan PD, which is the Washington uh, DC police force, and the federal agencies, the FBI and DHS when called upon. And all of that can be supplemented with National Guard security assistance if and when requested. The way it's structured at the Capitol is there's a sergeant at arms for the House and a sergeant at arms for the Senate. The Capitol Police, per their own timeline, received the authorization request from the Department of Defense, where I was chief of staff for National Guard's men and women, before January 6th. The Capitol Police then went to the sergeant at arms in the House and the Senate and the chief of police, and the decision was made, pursuant to their own timeline, that that request would be declined. The United States Supreme Court, Posse Comitatus, said, rightfully so, the United States military cannot be deployed domestically. 
Um, that's what local law enforcement and federal law enforcement are for. But they said that this is the whole purpose behind the National Guard, who are not full-time uniformed military officials. They are doctors, lawyers, teachers, husbands, wives, parents, who live in the community and have other full-time jobs, but when called upon are activated to come into the National Guard. The Supreme Court said two things must happen. One, the President of the United States has to authorize, not order, authorize, the use of the National Guard. Once that happens, step two has to happen as well before they can be deployed. And that is a request from the head of the state, the governor, in this case, Mayor Bowser, because it's Washington, D.C., or federal law enforcement needs to request the National Guard to be deployed. If those two things don't happen, then any issuance of the National Guard would be literally unconstitutional. Take you back to January 4th-ish, right? We're in the Oval Office with President Trump. It was me, the Secretary of Defense, Chairman and Joint Chiefs of Staff, Chief of Staff to the President of the United States, and obviously President Trump, and maybe one or two other officials. And I remember it, it was a Monday morning, we were talking about an extremely sensitive operation we were running overseas. Um, and then once we finished that topic, President Trump pivoted and said, hey, what are you guys doing, you know, basically for security? And I'm paraphrasing here for anything that might happen on January 6th. And we said, well, we're doing what we always do. We're getting ready, sir. And he said, well, if you need up to 20,000 National Guardsmen and women, not just in Washington, D.C., but anywhere in the country, you have my authorization. So roger that, sir. Check. We've got the commander in chief giving us that authorization that the law requires. So what do we do? The Department of Defense takes that authorization and goes to Mayor Bowser, literally, and goes to the Capitol Police and says, the president has said this many thousands of National Guardsmen and women are at your disposal but you need to make the request because the law prohibits us from just deploying them. Mayor Bowser, in writing, pursuant to her own letter that we released from her, sent to the Department of Defense, declined to issue any more National Guards men and women in writing on January, you know, I'm guessing now it was 4th or the 5th. The United States Capitol Police timeline now shows definitively what we've been saying the whole time because we knew it was true, that the United States Capitol Police similarly declined. The only thing that we cared about was a chain of command and following the law at DOD. And we were informed by Mayor Bowser, who runs DC, and by the Capitol Police, who are the federal law enforcement authority here, that no more troops would be necessary. Now, on that note, is it possible they had assessed that the Capitol Police would have been enough? Because they also didn't, they really didn't put down riot police initially either. No. So they seem to have assumed that the Capitol Police, in and of itself, was enough to handle that crowd. Would the Capitol Police normally be able to handle a crowd like that? Not of that size. It's just far too big. As we outlined earlier, uh, you know, what the Capitol Police's main functions are and, you know, what their abilities are. They're not the NYPD. There's not 40,000 uniformed cops um, sitting at the Capitol. That's just not the way it is. Well, the Capitol Police timeline shows that they were looking at things, and now the FBI's information has finally come out that the FBI had information about security concerns before January 6th. As for the rest, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and company were calling the Department of Defense, and rightfully so on that day, multiple times. And I remember vividly we were saying, well, once you tell us you want this, you know, we'll turn it on because we had prepped it so, so well. And we did exactly that. And then their complaint was, why aren't they here, you know, within the hour? How do you move people across America within the hour? We told you two days ago, we could have been stationed here and ready to go and hit the easy button, but you said no. And then the law would not allow us to act. Then we were told these same individuals, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and company, who, if you remember Lafayette Park, went absolutely apoplectic when the president walked across Lafayette Park with uh, a military officer with a sidearm. These same individuals on January 6th were asking where the tanks were and where the armored personnel carriers were. 
They wanted to turn downtown Washington, D.C. into downtown Kandahar. It's simply just not the purpose of the National Guard. And it's simply not, you, you wanted us to have belt-fed machine guns on top of mounted SUVs to do what? Mow down American citizens? You, I just did, they want now, the same people that were concerned about optics before January 6th were politically concerned about optics again, and they wanted that show of force. And we said we would do everything the law permitted us to do, but those weapons of, of war, literally, would not be deployed in the streets of Washington, D.C. So Trump offered to provide security on January 6th. If this was the case, then why did they decline to have the National Guard deployed, as Trump wanted? Why weren't riot police and better assets sent out initially? And why would they place this instead on the Capitol Police, who are not equipped or staffed to handle protests of this scale? And even beyond this, at the end of the day, why did they want weapons of war, including tanks and belt-fed machine guns, deployed against American citizens as a way to disperse a protest? The findings raise serious questions on the very people who've given themselves positions to run the investigations. A comprehensive review of evidence suggests that Capitol Police officers flagrantly violated the law in their handling of January 6th. Many of them should face criminal charges. But what does this mean for the other charges that day? Would their behavior of the police officers constitute entrapment? The definition of the crime of entrapment is in whose mind the crime occurred first. If an officer were to do something that he knew would provoke a response that would be arrestable, and if he did that act, that would be the classic definition of entrapment. And he or she would be entrapping the protester to violate the law. If an officer invited somebody into the Capitol building knowing that he was then going to charge them with trespassing, that would be entrapment, yes. From everything that I have looked at in this case, I believe that there was a conscious, um, if not stated, certainly endorsed and supported reaction on the part of uh, the, the police to create a circumstance where they could use force and make arrests. Uh, and it was born out of um, um, what I would characterize as being uh, angry at the protesters for their presence there in their jurisdiction, doing things that they didn't want them to do, being there, not only what they were doing, but who they were. Uh, that seemed to be a theme, and it seemed to be evident by their action, behavior, and conduct, which was quite frankly deplorable. The real story of January 6th is not the one that has been largely shown to the public. Normal protocols on a riot were not followed, and many people violated laws they did not know they were violating. The most serious acts of violence were on behalf of the Capitol Police. Yet the violence and at least one killing on their behalf are being ignored. 
but video evidence shows that many of them could stand trial for crimes on use of force and murder. All of these issues beg the question of why. January 6th is now being used politically and as a justification to create new laws on domestic terrorism. But if the foundation is false, then how can these stand? Crimes were committed on January 6th. But a two-tiered justice system is not justice, and a political investigation from an aggrieved party is not a real investigation. Potential crimes on all sides need to be treated with equal weight. America needs answers on why the main instigators are not charged, who made the calls on security that day, and why. Only through a true and clear presentation of the day's incidents can the nation be assured that justice is being served. And only through this light of true justice can America begin to heal. Good morning. Welcome to Over the Target Live. I'm Lee Smith. Thanks for joining us this morning with a very important and very moving show. Um, we're going to be speaking with, I, I know there's a little problems here with the signal. We'll come back as long as you can hear my voice. Um, we're going to be speaking with the family members of America's prisoners of conscience, um, men and women who are being detained by Joe Biden's Justice Department simply for exercising their First Amendment rights, their constitutional rights to both protest and express their political opinions. These are people who were charged for their participation in the post-election rally in Washington, D.C. There, The signal is back. Sorry about that. Um, and thank you very much for, for joining us this morning because it's a really important show. And um, we have some, some family members of, of some of these defendants, um, prisoners of conscience, as I call them, American political prisoners, shameful time for our country in this way. What, uh, what enriches our country, the glory of our country, are these people, uh, the family members, and these people themselves who got out and again exercised their constitutional right to express their political opinion, their right to freedom of assembly. And um, we're going to be speaking with them in just one second. Right now, though, I want to remind you that at the 20 minute mark, if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, and by the way, right now, I urge you to jump over to Epoch TV. But in the event you are watching us on Facebook or YouTube at 20 minutes, we're going to cut away and we'll only be on Epoch TV. And I'll tell you right then at the 20 minute mark, uh, I'll give you a little bit of a heads up when we're making the jump and you're going to want to make the jump because it's a very important conversation we're having here. Further, I have more information on Facebook and YouTube. You're going to want to hear that is absolutely shocking. Um, and you need to hear that and you need to hear their role in what's happening. Um, uh, so let's cut right away. Um, I want to introduce, we really have a panel today. Um, we're going to be speaking with, uh, Ed Martin. 
Cynthia Hughes, Jerry Perna, um, and Angela Morse. So I'm going to ask um, I'm going to ask Ed to start us off and give a little bit of an overview with what's happening here again with what I call America's prisoners of conscience. These are men and women who have been held for exercising their constitutional rights. Some have already been convicted. Um, uh, some are still being uh, held unconstitutionally in American jail. So Ed, if you can uh, start us off, thanks so much for being with us here this morning. And if you just yeah. want to kick us off, give a little bit of an overview. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Lee. First of all, it's great to be with you, Lee. Thanks for being such a voice for uh, our nation and our citizens. We're grateful. I know Cynthia Hughes is on and we'll hear from her as a family member, but I really came to this because of her, uh, like a lot of us, uh, the Patriot Freedom Project is an overarching entity that's raised uh, a lot of money to directly help uh, those men and their families, the men that are held prisoner and their families. And so where we are right now, Lee, is, you know, after the 2020 election and you built it up well, but there were people had lots of questions, right? They continue to have questions. Uh, mm -hmm. And and what happened when many expressed their, uh, uh, as you mentioned, their constitutional right to assemble, to speak, there's been arrests. In fact, there's been arrests this week, Lee. It's not stopping. It's, it's accelerating. Oh. And the arrests have two impacts. One, they damage a person, a man. Usually, it's men that are held in jail in this at this point, and they're in jail. We got over our Patriot Freedom Project is tracking over ninety of them in jail. But then the secondary effect is on their family, and so it's back to school time. It's it's kids that have learning disabilities that have health issues. It's families that lose jobs. So the overview is we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of prisoners, as you mentioned, for expressing and 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 using our constitutional rights. And then we have families. And so our effort and mine, I happen to represent three of the defendants uh, pro bono. I'm an attorney, too. But our real focus here and hearing from these three great women is the impact on the families and what we can do and what we can understand the reality. Because, Lee, this is classic. The phrase I'm going to use is the phrase that captures what's wrong. And the phrase is due process denied. We in America expect our constitution, our rule of law to afford us protections. And when the protections are taken, they're supposed to be done in a way, due process, and it's been denied. And so the stories are one after another, Lee, of these men in jail in terrible conditions, conditions that you'd get if you're a rapist or a murderer when some of these people are in for trespass or, or obstruction. And then the family is the impact. So America needs to keep uh, awake to the impact of, of what's happening and as I mentioned yesterday, tomorrow, they're arresting more people because this is not about the law. It's about terrorizing the American citizens. So uh, thanks for the chance to hear from these women and to understand the broader issues, Lee. Thanks so much, Ed. Thanks for the for the great overview on that. Cynthia, you, you've been with us before a couple of months ago, um, you know, talking about uh, talking about your nephew, Tim, and his role in the protest. Um, in the uh, in the post election, uh, in the post election protest, demanding accountability from the American political system and questioning, as uh, it is the right of Americans to question the integrity of our political processes, including elections. And so, your nephew Tim was um, was was arrested. Can you give us some update on 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 what his situation is now, where he is now, and 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 how how his 
how he's faring in this insane system. Yes, and thank you for having me, Lee. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, it's good to see you. So he's been in jail for 20 months at this point. Um, he was found guilty um, in May of this year, and he was supposed to go to sentencing on September 16th. That just got moved. Um, and not that it got moved very far, but the fact is it got moved. It's just delay, 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 delay. And this kid has been, you know, languishing away in jail in solitary confinement conditions for 20 months. No criminal history, 12 years in the United States Army Reserves, um, and nonviolent charges. And he is lumped into the narrative of what some bad actors did that day. It's not all. It's some. And a lot of people like my nephew, Tim, like Matthew Perna, who you'll hear about in just a moment, like Robert Morse, and many, many, many others of the 900 people that have already been arrested, charged and indicted in connection to a protest that took place in D.C. a year ago. Um, it's it's unprecedented. This is an act of revenge. This is not about what people did over the course of a few hours. And yeah, there was some poor choices made, but what, what we're doing to people, taking their lives away, what we're doing to families, young children, raiding homes, that is what the talking point should be. Um, thank you, Cynthia. Um, uh, Jerry, can I ask you, um, can I ask you to, to tell the story of, of your nephew, Matthew? I think a lot of, uh, a lot of viewers will have some sort of idea, but also something recently just happened about, uh, a, 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 about a memorial race because Matthew was a devoted long distance runner, right? And um, there was going to be a memorial race in Pennsylvania. So if you can talk a little bit about that, but if you can also, you know, please tell his story and, and tell your story too. I will. Thank you, Lee, for having me. Um, Matthew was a runner. Matthew was a lot of things. He was a world traveler. He was a very successful business person. And um, when he when he attended the event, it was there because of election integrity. And he thought it was going to be a day of celebration. He honestly thought they were going to be celebrating that the election was not certified and he wanted to be part of an historic event. It was the worst day of his life. He walked into the Capitol through already open doors, walked past the police. Nobody arrested anybody. He was holding a cell phone, chanting USA, USA, and he stayed within the velvet ropes. And then he left. And eventually was charged with the felony of obstruction of Congress, along with a few misdemeanors. It was the most devastating blow that our family and Matt had ever incurred. And it started the next 13 months of sheer agony. And Cynthia just said delay after delay after delay. Well, that's exactly what Matthew went through. Every hearing was delayed. Um, the, evidence that they kept searching for that simply wasn't there. He was just a regular guy. He wasn't involved in any militia groups or anything of that kind. He was just a, an American citizen who had his own opinions on things. So delays and, and, a, and a lawyer that was less than adequate 
and he ended up pleading guilty in December and his sentencing was supposed to be in February. And a week before the, fe- the sentencing, he was told by his attorney that the DOJ was planning to add a sentencing enhancement. All along, his attorney was saying he would see six to 12 months. And now suddenly we were talking four to six years. And it was more than my nephew could take. And on that Friday night, he hung himself in his garage. And we've never been the same since. And we never will be. And he wasn't the only person because just recently, another January 6th person, Mark Angst, also took his life. And um, we're trying to memorialize Matt, his friends. Matt was a runner. And he ran several races throughout the United States. And at his funeral, the people he ran with came up to me and suggested that they would like to have a memorial run in his memory. And they wanted to hold it in the town that he was raised in. And the race would go through the Shenango River Dam, where Matt often ran. And we put we submitted our, our application for the permit. And we didn't hear anything, but they assured us everything looked good. And um, beginning of August, we resubmitted the permit just to make sure that everything was okay. And we once again were told everything looked good. And then this past Monday night, I received an email stating that the permit was now denied. And um, it was because we are in an election year. And because the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers doesn't want to be affiliated with anything political. And after looking and Googling on Matt, they saw that he was involved in that event. They saw where Patriot Freedom Project is helping the families from that event. And they they rescinded their permit. And now we are faced with finding another venue, which we think we have. But a local news station yesterday did a story on the dam, you know, not giving us the permit. And their Facebook page has exploded today. And now we are receiving threats that people are going to show up and protest the race. So I don't know if the race is going to happen at this point because the business that's sponsoring the event is not going to want this publicity the town that it, the rest the race is going to be held in is going to have to have major police pre- presence with these threats coming in now. All because we want to remember Matt in, in, in doing something he enjoyed. What, what can we do to help support the race, uh, the organizers, and your family so that while there's pressure on, while there's pressure on one side coming from coming from animals, monsters, and lunatics, that that the organizers understand there's also a large wellspring of support for honoring a young man, um, for honoring a wonderful young man who was pushed, you know, who was pushed over the edge. What, Honestly, let us know I, what we can do to help. I'll, uh, I'll be honest with you. I don't know what can be done because it just seems like even though we know we are fighting for what is right. We are being silenced. Everybody is being silenced. We're being canceled all over this country and people are not waking up to it. I'm, I'm at my wit's end this morning about this. I, I don't know what's going to happen with this run at this point. 
Anyone who's watching, who has an idea, who has advice, who can help, um, can you say that uh, what what what's the town again? Can, do you Sharp want to say Hill. the okay? Sharpsville, Pennsylvania. If anyone who's out there is watching, who has an idea, productive idea, a helpful idea, a peaceful idea, something constructive, please send it in, write it in, uh, write it in in the comments. You see that you can, you're free to comment. So please do that. Whatever help you can, whatever help you can offer would be terrific. This young man, Matthew Perna, deserves to be honored. You know, um, one thing I'd like to say, Lee, I feel like even though Matt is dead, mm -hmm. there are still people kicking him, kicking him while he's dead. Won't even allow us to honor his name. They're animals. Yes. Hey, Lee, uh, Lee, Lee, can I say over at the Epic Times, they wrote a piece on this that has more yeah. details. So for our, our, your viewers that go and get that article, you'll see some of the players at the Army Corps if, if somebody has an influence. And to be clear, what, what Jerry's not maybe saying all the details, it's, it's, it's a nonpartisan 501c3 event. It's not about you – know, the run is about – suicide awareness and helping people. It doesn't matter if you're a liberal or a conservative, suicide prevention is, we're all in for that, I think. And so the idea that the Army Corps right. is being avoiding politics is simply a lie, right? It's just an excuse. Right. And you, you can yeah. bet your bottom dollar if they were doing breast cancer awareness or if they were doing a uh, awareness on women's health, they'd say, oh, it's a 501c3, giddy up. Well, in this case, it's a 501c3 abided by all the rules and targeted. You know, you don't have to have 87,000 new IRS agents to target the people that are doing well. And let me say something because Jerry's too nice and she's a very important figure because of how articulate she is. But these people that attack her nephew and her are evil. I mean, there's some people that are just wrong, but they're evil people who are doing this. And we need to say that about them. You know, these are evil people that are targeting true suffering and you, you have to name it so that you know what you're fighting. It's not a debate about which part of the Constitution is your favorite. It's these people are targeting, trying to destroy people. And again, if this kid, Matthew Perna, chose to do this, if he decided to run for office or be at whatever, he's just trying to live his life. And they target him till he's, he's gone and still. And it's happening all over the country, Lee. People should be, as Jerry said, outraged. And, and outrage means angry, rage. I'm raging, too, for what they did to this kid. And they're doing to other kids all across the country right now. It's, it's, it's so un-American, I can barely stand it. I'm, I'm sorry, Lee. No, and it starts at the very top. You're talking about the evil. We're talking about the animals. And it starts at the very top, the Biden White House and the Biden Justice Department. Look, we're going to, uh, Angela, I'm sorry for, for taking so long to get to you, but it's so important that you tell your story um, uh, 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 about your son, about Robert. We're just going to cut away just in one second and move off of YouTube and Facebook. Please, if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, we'll get off of Facebook and YouTube <laughs> and join us over at Epoch TV exclusively. You need to hear the rest of this show. You need to hear these people speak about what's going on, about how they're experiencing it personally. And dear Lord, we've got to do something about it. We got to have to get out of this and get off of Facebook or YouTube and make the jump right away to Epoch TV. We'll see you in a minute or less than a minute. His mind was poisoned or he was actively recruited by Hezbollah and the Iranians while he was in Lebanon. 
This is not about religious fanaticism and religious strongholds. This is about terrorist operations. Dave Chappelle, he's up on stage, he's making controversial jokes about transgender people. His critics are saying maybe this was called for, that this is insensitive to that community, it's doing damage to that community, he shouldn't be able to say these things. But when someone gets attacked on stage and nearly killed just for writing a book, is this something that could wake people up potentially? Once these sunset clauses have gone away, Iran will have a 100% legalized nuclear weapons program that the West, led by the Obama administration first, and now the Biden administration will have pushed into history. Hey, thanks for coming back. Good, uh, very good decision. Good call. Uh, and good idea to get off of Facebook and YouTube. You may have noticed that first 20 minutes we were using all sorts of, or I, I, I was using all sorts of strange circumlocutions, basically getting around the phrasing January 6th, because I, 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 I've, I've been uh, informed that uh, Facebook and YouTube are looking for these words and their AI uh, robot programs, and they basically throw people off the off of Facebook or YouTube for that. And a lot of you may have known uh, or may have seen yesterday, uh, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. He was telling Joe Rogan on his podcast that it was the FBI who told him the Hunter Biden story was Russian disinformation. So that's why Facebook and the FBI interfered in the 2020 election. Okay, so from now on, when people say, oh, I don't know if there was interference in the 2020 election, there was, and it came from the national security apparatus. That's evidence right there. And we have it from Mark Zuckerberg, not from conspiracy theorists, not from nuts. We have it from Mark Zuckerberg, that the FBI told him it was Russian disinformation and that censored news the way they're trying to censor us, the way they're trying to censor, uh, the way they're trying to censor the families of January 6th defendants, the way they continue to hurt Matthew Perna, and the way they continue to hurt his family, the way they, the, the way that they're hurting the relatives of the, the, the relatives of other defendants as well. It's all part of the same insane apparatus. It's madness. And that's why it's so important to have these people here this morning to describe what's happening <clears throat> so you get a sense of how this is affecting us all as human beings on a human level. It's not just something we're reading about in the press. It's not just something that you hear about on TV. You have to understand how it's affecting people on a human level, and it will affect all of us unless we step up and do something about it. Now, I want to ask Angela, I'm sorry, Angela, to postpone this so long, but if, if, if you can please, if you can uh, please talk about your boy and, um, and, and, and let us know his situation and your family's situation too. And thank you so much for being here with us this morning. Thank you. And first, I'd like to address what you said about it being a very human uh, level. And that is most definitely the case. And I hope that the viewers today, if anything, can take that in, that um, this isn't uh, TV or a movie, that um, the prisoners, I consider them political prisoners, um, they have been feeling this pain, this anguish, and so have their families for a very, very long time. Um, my son, Robert Morse, um, I want to go back a little bit, just share a little Please. bit about him. Um, I have two sons, though, and Robert is my older. Uh, Robert went into the military at 17, um, phenomenal athlete, uh, 
and um, he was quickly um, uh, taken in as an army ranger and he uh, served three tours in Afghanistan um, and then when he returned he uh, went to Penn State and graduated as a teacher um, and shortly after his graduation uh, he was arrested um, on June 11th um, 2021 and he has been in jail ever since um, he has spent uh, two birthdays in Afghanistan and two birthdays in prison. As a mother, that is infuriating. Um, I cannot tell you the pain I feel for him. Um, the conditions that he has experienced um, have been horrific. Uh, when he was in DC, um, he was visited by his attorney there was an issue with his attorney and um, the guards. Once his attorney left, he was assaulted. Um, it included physical, emotional, and there were sexual components to that. Um, and after that, he was then moved to Northern Neck, and that's where he is at this time. Um, there is a part of this scenario which, um, for a mother, um, and I know the two ladies here with us today who are now my friends um, can speak to this also is so painful that it almost is surreal. Um, you can't imagine that this is happening to the person you love so dearly. You can't imagine um, what they are going through for such a long period of time. Um, Robert just went to uh, court for a bench trial this past week. Um, he was found guilty um, for three counts. And here's what really is frustrating to me um, on top of everything else. Um, I got, I found out what the, the um, situation was, what he was guilty of and sentencing by is five and a half months away on January 6th. Now, how is that going to give him any kind of fair sentencing? And he has to wait five and a half months for sentencing. Every single step what, what, we take. What is the rationale? What's the rationale for postponing sentencing until January 6th? There is none, Lee. There is none. There's no rationale with these judges huh. or this prosecution. And these two women, I've gotten very close with both of them. I love both of these, these young ladies. Um, I have watched Angela just be a champion for her son. Her circumstances have been horrendous. She moved cross country. She's so strong. She's an incredible mother, an incredible woman, loves her son. She is a, just a, such a support system. And she, as much as Robert has been jerked around, she has been jerked around. Her life has turned upside down. And I don't mean to take over your conversation, Angela, and I'm going to give you the floor back, but I have watched in horror what is happening to these families. I talk to Robert often. He is an incredible young man, very bright, very well-spoken. And his outlook and attitude, of course, he has his rough days, just like Tim, but his outlook and his attitude, he's very hopeful and faith-filled and God-filled and still manages to pray and keeps his mm. head above the water. It's sick what these people are doing. How can a judge justify 
postponing this kid's sentencing five and a half months. He has no criminal history. He has served our country honorably, and he's an incredible person. These judges do not take into account what is happening. They're so fixated on politics and revenge. They cannot see past that. Oh, no. I, I mean, I, I think they are aware of what's happening. Yeah. I think that they want to cause as much human suffering as possible. Exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, they're very, I mean, they're very, very sinister people. Uh, I, I, absolutely. May I leave just very briefly uh, on behalf of yeah, the lawyers, uh, the lawyers that are, are, are working on this, they, they know what they're doing. Uh, this is all, you know, it's thrown around sort of glibly. It's a show trial. And 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 the and the enter the entertainment for them it's not entertaining it's it's a narrative to try to destroy people to destroy Donald Trump and to destroy the conservative movement and all and and, and the real shame of it besides the human suffering which is the top of the list is they're gutting the rule of law because there's no reason we're not having fair trials in Washington D.C. in these courts the juries are completely biased and the select committee is having televised propaganda hearings on top of trials. And so you're literally getting coordination between the Department of Justice and the Congress, separate branches of the Constitution, and they're putting people, talk about due process denied, these men in a position where they can't win. In fact, it's not just they can't win, they become depicted as animals. There are Absolutely. A couple, there are a Absolutely. couple of animals in this. There are a couple of animals from the rides yeah. January 6th, yeah. but it's not... 99.9% of these people. And well, it's, I mean, it's look, I, I mean, I mean, no, I mean, the fact is right. Of, of course it appears that it, with everything else that was going on, there were some people who, who did bad things and, and guess what? They're American citizens and <laughs> we have a law code. So if you break the law, right. for instance, if, um, if you break the law, then you should be charged with those crimes. You're not treated like a political prisoner or domestic terrorist, right? right? This well, is what, and and no, Lee, they use, ahead, they're yeah. using a charge, the obstruction charge, as a way to get all these people into a different category. If you're charged with misdemeanors, like you know, if you're at a football game, you have open container, you get a misdemeanor charge. If you're a, a trespasser, you get a misdemeanor charge. Misdemeanors have a certain way they're dealt with. And lots of these people, men, got charged with misdemeanors, and then they throw the obstruction on top and call it a felony, and then say we'll throw you in the gulag. And 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 that it's happening. And there's not wholesale a rebellion by the bar and by Congress. Both parties is insane. It's insane. So, I, but you I, know, Lee, they're they're using the obstruction charge, and they're using these people like Tim Hale and Robert Morse and many other. There's only about 200 plus people that have been charged so far with obstruction. Right. Not everybody has been charged with it. It's only a certain amount of people. But they're using these people using this obstruction charge for one reason and one reason only. And that is to charge President Donald Trump with right. obstruction. That is yeah. ultimately what they want to do. We're all pawns in this. That's yeah. what this whole thing is about. January 6th is about that man. And it's sick. It's sick well, what they're doing. I, I mean, I, I think it's about, it's certainly about Donald Trump, but it's also about Donald Trump supporters. This is one of the disgusting yes. things about it, right? It's not just about, it's about like, how dare you? I mean, Angela, you're, you're, the, story, uh, the story of your son, I mean, he served this country. He wore this country's uniform. He, he went to Afghanistan. He put himself in harm's way. And, 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 and then how dare he protest on behalf of the person vo uh, he voted for? How dare well, he? We're let me interrupt there, too. It's obscene.
and let me share what they want to do next. I've already gotten the documentation. They want to take away all of his veterans' rights. Um, he came back from uh, his time as an Army Ranger physically broken because um, I'm not sure how many of the viewers are familiar what it means to be an Army Ranger, but you are doing the tough, tough work of the army. You're jumping out of helicopters. You're going in the middle of the night. You're going after the bad guys. And he is um, disabled. Um, he's had severe injuries and um, he also has PTSD. So they, we have, I have now received documentation that they want to take away all benefits. Um, how does, it's just unbelievable to me. And yet, um, this week alone, I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten from the GOP saying, where are you? We need your donation. Aren't you going to come and help? I don't even open Robert's email anymore because it's continual from them. And I think, you don't know where we are. <laughs> I know they're just sent out, but it's painful. It really is. Do we yeah, because they don't mention January 6th, Lee. They don't talk I, about January 6th. Right. No, I, mm -hmm. I know. No, I know. We, I mean, this has been one constant theme of this show. We bring people on like, what, what, I mean, they're scared, right? And we know what's happening. Leadership is telling them, hey, uh, hey, everyone, just keep your heads down. Don't worry. As long as, as, long as we don't, um, you know, as long as we don't mess up, let Joe Biden run the country in, into a pothole and it's going to be great. Voters won't have any independence won't have any choice to go for us. But don't say anything about January 6th. Don't make it complicated. Don't make it ugly. That, that's exactly what's going on. And that's why it's they're already not ugly. defending their voters. Yeah, it is. And it's going to get a lot uglier, Lee, because this DOJ is on a mission. They're going to arrest as many people as they possibly can. This is why we've created Patriot Freedom Project. We have helped many, many lawyers with the retainers to take on more cases. We have supplemented retainers. We've helped a lot of people that are caught up in this. We've provided uh, mental health to a lot of families uh, with psychologists and social workers. We've raised money. We've paid mortgages. We've paid rent. We've paid utilities. Is, is someone helping out Robert on the... Uh on his veterans benefits. Again, if there's anyone, I keep looking away from the camera. I'm sorry, but I'm just looking at some of the nice comments that we're getting from people. I just want to read a few because they're very supportive. I don't know if you guys can see him too. This is yes. from someone, Nakia C. Payne. I pray for the people that are in prison for being American patriots. They do not deserve to be in there. Most of these people are veterans. I mean, this is an important thing. Angela, this is what you were just saying. You know, your, your, your son is yes. a veteran. And, and, and I think I think this is not a mistake. It's not an accident that they're going after veterans. They're, what? Because what? Because it's the anti-American faction of the United States of America that's targeting American patriots. These things are not accidents. Right? The, the greatest, people who love their country. The greatest help so far has been the Patriot Freedom Project. Um, they have, um, well, and I say they, but truly Cynthia has been there uh, for me uh, tremendously, not only as an organization and support in that manner, but also as a friend. Uh, and uh, I greatly appreciate that tremendously. And then um, I do have a give, send, go um, set up for Robert. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because when um, he was first arrested by the FBI, they said that he had a um, Lego set 
of the Capitol set up and all this stuff. Oh, right. But um, they don't know my which he that didn't. Was Robert. Okay. Right. right. But um, he has so many Legos. I can't even tell you. In fact, in my backyard right now, I have a shed full of containers of Legos. Um, and since he was a child, he loved them. And so I. I made the uh, Gives and Go, Gives and Go Lego Man, um, which makes it really easy to find. But yeah, that was one of those things that was just ridiculous because, I mean, he teaches history. He loves history and he loves Legos yeah. and uh, he didn't have it even put together. Was he if teaching? I can say something, Please. the Lego thing, do, just does this give everybody the the impression how ridiculous this is that they are grasping i mean legos i mean even my nephew matthew in his case they cited emojis that he used on yeah. facebook emojis yeah, and right. one of them was a bomb one of them was a bomb you know how you say oh we're going to go to a party it's going to be the bomb oh. they used that bomb and we're trying to connect it to a terroristic threat Yep. An emoji. I mean, this goes to show you they really don't have the evidence on most of these people that they're claiming to have. And I mean, come on. Everybody needs to wake up. They need to I, wake up. You're, you're right. That's that's one side of it, I think, Jerry, that they don't have the evidence. They're making stuff up. They're inventing it. But of course, of course, this is what third world style security regimes do. And the people who rise to the top in these regimes are sick, demented people. Right. Yes. And that's what we're seeing right now. The idea they're going through emojis, they're going through Legos. Well, right. it, it, it's not just pathetic. It's evidence of how sick these people are. And so I think Lee, that, that, that's another. Um, yeah, it's, go ahead. A, it's a rest now and investigate later. Exactly. That's, exactly. that's what yeah, they're that, doing. And, and I'll yeah. tell you. Ed, excuse me just one second. I'll yeah. tell you like with Tim. So Tim has no violent charges at all. Zero violent charges. No assault charges. Okay. He's charged with obstruction and a couple of misdemeanors. When they raided him, it was several FBI agents and NCIS because he lived on the military base. Right. They pulled him out of his truck. They threw him on the ground. They stepped on his legs, stepped on his back took him to interrogation where he had no lawyer present. He was scared to death. He said, let me just tell the truth. And that's what he did. And they put him in jail and he's rotting away for 20 months. When they raided his, his home, he lived in bachelor housing on the military base. Um, he had six, over 600 history books, history books, books about language, theology, Bibles, history books about presidents. They honed in on one book that he had, one book. And it was the 1984 book, two books, and the Mayan Kampf book. They took those two books out of his, his book collection. I could show you pictures. He had almost a thousand books, but they didn't want to tell you that. They only wanted to tell you about those two books and say, see, he's a white supremacist. He's, right. he's getting indoctrinated. It's sick what these people are doing. This is a witch hunt. This is the third impeachment. And this is revenge on Donald Trump. But Cynthia, may finish that story. Tim is, isn't he Puerto Rican background? And Tim is half Puerto Rican. Half yes. Puerto Rican. And, he's, and, 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 he's got, and part Jewish. He's got a heck of a trail to get from there yeah. to being a white supremacist. But Lee, let me say. Same with me. I'm, I'm half Puerto Rican <laughs> too. Tell oh, your really? nephew. 
Yeah, yeah. I, my, my, I, was, Rican, yes. I was born in Puerto Rico. Yeah. I was. I always thought you were a white supremacist. Jim was but born anyway, in New Jersey. He's half Puerto Rican. Very well spoken. Incredibly intelligent. Very profoundly articulate. And all they want to talk about is certain unfortunate, stupid choices he made um, that do not define him. I want to. He's very mischaracterized. Lee, I want to make a legal point yeah. on this. And by the way, over in the comments, people Please. I think are asking, patriotfreedomproject.com is the place you can go learn more about the families and what Connect Cynthia's with the done. Sixer. Yeah. Connect Patriot. with the one sixer. You'll find uh, Robert's address, Tim's address, many of yeah. the, the J6ers address. Connect with the one sixer, patriotfreedomproject.com. Sorry. So, Ed. But here's the legal thing I want to say, Lee. When you have the Department of Justice uh, and the FBI and others leaking and they're leaking in a sophisticated way to sway the public understanding. The reason why they leak the Legos is because it catches your brain. You go, oh, Legos. Yep. The guy was building a, a capital for Legos. I, he must have. And it, your, your, your mind, most people move on and they shut down. They're like, wow, that guy was really planning. No, he wasn't. There's no allegation of planning anything, right? Well, the reason they leak the, the, the isolated uh, books of one person or the, the, the texts of one person, we got people that are getting held in prison for texts or emojis, as Jerry said, but held in prison for texts between their buddies when they're acting like, 15-year-old kids, 15-year-old guys. I got news for the FBI. Every guy texting his buddies sooner or later acts like a 15-year-old guy. That's how you do it. That's how – and the, use, my point is the selective leaking, Lee, it, we're, we're not even used to seeing that to this extent. But then you put the select committee behind it with TV coverage, and you suddenly realize this is not – they're not even hiding it. They're just destroying people to frame a narrative, to frame the president – but as Lee said, it's not just to frame the president, President Trump. It's also what you do when you're in one of these in these states, fascist states. And because most people say, oh, my gosh, I'm going to put my head down. I, I don't want to go through that. And and the chilling effect on we the people is part of what they're doing with this, uh, with the lies. But it's, it's horrendous to see how uh, mis, uh, misled the public is on who these people are. People think that these are really bad dudes in jail. And it's just, it's not even close. There, there um, should be so much outrage, Lee, over the death of Matthew Perna. Yeah. There should be incredible outrage of right. what they've just done to the Perna family. It's like killing Matt all over again. Pardon me, Jerry, to say it so bluntly like that. Um, but that's like. what they're doing. It's a disgrace. I'm here all, even though you can't, <laughs> there's no signal. I'm here. I'm in, I'm in, I'm, I'm in, I'm in uh, storm territory. That might be the issue. Let me just read something here. We're going to go. I just want to read something. This is from a guy who's always watching the show. Great guy. Um, and, and Jerry, this, I wanted to especially note this for you. It's a, our friend Snazzy Burrito it says, may Matt and the other Jan six prisoners and their families who are going through this, be blessed by God through these extremely tough times in the world. So that's that's for all of you. And thank you, Snazzy Burrito, for saying that. And, May I uh, comment to that? Please. What I, I would like to share that I just um, have an absolute love for the Lord. And I'm thankful for, um, for uh, how much God has been with me hmm. through all this. And... Um, and also that um, God has not been alone through this because he has had the Holy Spirit with him. And um, he has 
become even closer to God. He's allowed God to almost break him and um, rebuild him. Mm. And uh, I think one of the saddest things of everything was um, when I talked to him the day after he went to trial this past week, not the day after, the evening that he went to trial. And he cried and cried. And he said, I'm angry at God. I'm angry mm. at God. And um, that was painful. But then the next day, we talked again. And he said, I realized something. That when Jesus was on the cross, when he was nailed to the cross, he still wasn't angry at God. How can I be angry at God? Oh, he's such a love. He really is. Can I say something about that? I understand Please. the angry, angry at God. Matt was very angry uh. because his prayers, his prayers weren't answered. And now we don't have him anymore. And I'm angry. I am angry at God. I haven't been able to pray since February 25th when my nephew died. They're taking, they're even taking away our faith in God. And I honestly believe that's the ultimate goal here. They want to make us hopeless. I agree. That is their goal, to make us hopeless. And that's why I'm saying it's not just about Donald Trump. They want to take hope away from us. And that's the point of going after individuals saying, you think you get to choose your leaders? You think you get to choose anything? We make the decisions. I absolutely agree with you, Jerry. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to take our hope away from us. They're trying to take, and that's why, and that's why I, I, I know with all of you, why we keep saying this is not just a spiritual struggle. It's not just a political conflict, a political struggle. It is fundamentally a spiritual struggle. That's that's what it is, and and I, and I think so many people out there understand the people who are paying attention, the people who have heard you, Jerry. The people have heard you, Angela, and you, Cynthia, and you, Ed. The people have heard you. They understand what it is, what we're going through, and what this takes, and what this demands of us. And God you bless know what, they, what? What is to come of, you know, we'll just say, you know, Robert and, and Tim, when they come home. Right. What they've lost and how they have to rebuild we have to do something about that. We have to make sure they come home and <clears throat> transition back to real life. You know, putting their life in, you know, intact again, if you will, is, is easy for them. That's what Patriot Freedom Project is working very hard on. We're trying very hard to sustain these families, sustain these men and women, because we do have women behind bars as well. Nobody should be held in pretrial detention the way these people have. These men and women have not been able to participate in their own defense with their lawyer. It's sick. But yet you look at other protesting groups and and, and they get out of jail. You look at 
uh, a vice president candidate who was willing to, you know, bail people out of jail, um, who actually did break the law, who actually did commit a crime. It's really, really twisted. And everybody in this country should be outraged. And the people that, you know, are are saying good. I mean, I get terrible, terrible emails and messages sometimes. We get a lot of hate. Angela can confirm that. Jerry oh, yeah. That. We get a lot of hate. And in, in a lot of the hate letters we get, um, you know, it's, you know, they're insurrectionists and they're treasonists and they're this and they're that. You know what? Well, what about all the other people? And I guarantee you, Lee, that there's a lot of people in this country that really don't feel that way. They're just on the bandwagon. We need to continue this conversation as much as possible. Well, and Lee, let me let me say that on, on that one of the things about the lawyers is, is this great group of lawyers that have come step forward to help a lot of yes. them. Uh, and it's been extraordinary. But that legal fight, just to say what uh, Cynthia said, that's one piece of it, because we have to reclaim the country. And part of it is to tell the truth about January 6th. And so that we right. someday when we're, we write the history that says, here's what actually happened. You know, your friend, Lee, uh, the great Julie Kelly has done mm -hmm. such a good job of this, but we all have to, we have to win the battle to reclaim the narrative, to tell the truth. Because as yeah. you point out, we need to be able to, I want us in 50 years, I want to go to something and celebrate the guys that survived the gulag for January 6th. I want to say those guys were heroes at a time where the country was spinning the wrong direction. And that's the, you know, we, we, as, as Cynthia said, Patriot Freedom Project does do, is focused on the right thing. These guys are going to come home, some of them. You need, they need help when they come home. They need help with job creation. They need mm -hmm. help uh, job training. we got to do all that. But we also have to win this fight to talk the truth and have people realize we keep beating the hoaxes of the left. They keep mm -hmm. having hoaxes. They, you know, the Russia hoax, right, and all these hoaxes. We have to break this hoax, too, so that our country can, you know, understand what's really happened and move forward in a positive way. Ed, I think you're absolutely right. This is really important to keep telling the truth because this is one of their purposes to swallow up the story, to yep. keep inventing it and to keep pushing hard on it. And that's why you have things like Facebook and uh, YouTube <laughs> will throw right. you off the air if you use the phrase January 6th. Right. It's the idea that they're going to write the history of this particular moment. And, it, and that's a very scary aspect of it, too. And it's something that we really need to keep in mind, right? Because on the other side of this conflict, on the other side of this struggle, there is not going to be anyone making our case. Right. We need to win this struggle to be able to make our case, right? All of the different, all, all of the different tragedies that have happened throughout, throughout humankind, the only reason that these are known as tragedies is because of the particular disposition of who wound up winning. That's how their story got told. So it's very important that we continue to tell the real story of what has happened, what is happening. Because once the story is lost, we're in trouble, as is the country as a whole. Right. It's true. It's true. And you know, Lee, with people like you and people like the great Julie Kelly, or as I call her, the great Jewel, <laughs> um, you know, we, 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 we can get the story out, but we need more. We meet, we need more Lee Smith. We need more Julie Kelly because really, I, I, I think I, that's very kind. I appreciate it. Cindy. I think we need more people like the great people out, uh, out in the audience who are watching and who need to go out and share this, that people need to hear what you guys are saying. 
and 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 people need. Uh, look, I, I mean, here here where here where I live, um, there are lots of people, and I'm not talking about crazed leftists. They're just like regular people because you know one of the things that they're taking advantage of is because Americans aren't freaks. Right. Because Americans are hardworking people and Americans have families and you're focused on your family, you know, as 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 with all of you, the focus on your family. And so you're not sorting through the news all the time trying to figure out what's happening. Right. This was the same thing they took advantage of us with covid, with Russiagate, with everything. That's how they take advantage of us with our lies. Right. Because not everyone has time. Not everyone has time to go and find out what's really going on. And so you tell people, I find myself explaining to people what really happened on January 6th. Like, what? That's what happened? Like, absolutely, that's what happened. All the stuff you're hearing is garbage. Look, look at the evidence of everything that you believed. And now you see what reality is. So I think that's really important to tell people, spread word, family and friends, say what happened on January 6th, say what's happened to the relatives of the three women that are speaking with us today. And imagine the, imagine the burden, the pain, the heartache, the peril to so many wives. We have wives that were pregnant when their husband was arrested that had to end their maternity leave short because their husband's in jail and they have to be the breadwinner. We have wives who have very young children two years old, three years old, four years old. We have wives who have sons. We have a, a wife that has a 16 year old son who's acting out and he had to go to like a camp. He had to go, you know, she had to put him in a Bible camp. Um, they have to figure out how to get through the holidays, how to, you know, cr you know, make back to school happen, new shoes, backpacks. But here's the thing at, um, excuse me, Lee, that's really important. These families, these women, I know this, and Angela knows this. Unfortunately, Jerry, well, she might know this. I don't, I'm not, maybe you really don't, but now there's extra expenses for these families. You have to pay to talk on the phone to your loved one. You have to put money in commissary to make sure they're going to get some food that has nutritional value because what they serve in the prison, in the jails, is outrageous. OK, you you want to have a video visit. You got to pay nine dollars for that for one 15 minute you know, video call that barely works. OK, and on top of that, you have to pay for mail. The list is long. So in addition to what these families, you know, specifically these wives, um, a, a, a divorced mother who relocated her life, started a new job, bought a new home. Mm hmm. You, I'm talking about you, Angela. Okay, mm. um, they they have another expense between three and five hundred dollars a month. Okay? <clears throat> we need so much support. Patriot Freedom Project has helped with commissary, has helped with uh, retainers, has helped with mortgage, rent, food. We send out gift cards at Christmas. We need gift cards. We need donations. We need help for our legal defense fund and. You know, and we're gonna okay. How, how, how's this? Every every people, uh, audience, viewers, spread this word around uh, around your friends. Once you start getting emails from Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell asking <laughs> for money, forget it. No, I'm gonna make uh, seriously because because here's the thing: it's like people talk about all the time. Well, how can we get 
things done. Look at how the left gets all these things done and they have all this money and they circulate it. Well, look at what these boys did, right? Matthew and Robert and Tim, they, they did it for free. They love their country for free, right. right? They weren't expecting to be organized and to make a career out of it. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll take one of these 87,000 jobs as an IRS agent and I'll get paid. I'll get paid by the left to do absolutely nothing. These boys did it all because they love their country, but now they need help. Now they do need support, right? They didn't expect this. Who would have expected it? So I'm being serious. Instead of if you have, if you can give, skip the skip skip the Republican beggars. Give it to <laughs> these guys. These people love their country. You've already seen it. They've already tested it. They've already proven it. So if I can Ed, say something, Lee. The, yeah, yeah, you please, know, the, the ironic thing about this is in comparison, when someone on the on the left has a fundraiser and they take it to GoFundMe and it gets blown out of the water, tens of thousands of dollars gets donated. The minute January 6th people started with GoFundMe, they were immediately taken down right. and they resorted to the Christian crowdfund, crowd fundraising site. Uh, give, send, go. Right. Just try sharing a give, send, go on Facebook for a January 6th person. Well, I was doing um, Paul Hodgkins from Tampa, Florida. Oh, he God. got, he did his eight and a half month jail sentence for nonviolent crimes on January 6th. He got out of jail and he couldn't find a job. Of course. And that's the other thing people are not realizing. Just because they've done their sentence doesn't mean life just starts up again. That's okay. not the way it works. So he had to take a very low paying job. And I thought, well, let me share Paul's give, send, go with my friends because people were asking how could they help. So I went to share the give, send, go on my Facebook page. Now, I don't have a lot of followers. I may have 150 people. That might be it as far as friends go. And I went to share it and immediately I received a message on my phone. You are at risk of losing your Facebook account for spreading hate speech by posting the give, send, go for Paul. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. So the one person who was really interested in knowing Paul's give, send, go, I decided to send it to her in Messenger. I got a worse warning in Messenger Wow. about my post they they actually were reading my post in messenger about this give send go so get, the fundraising yeah. they are trying to stop these people from even raising funds to help with right. this i mean it's unbelievable right. but let's give george floyd a memorial and and martyrize right. the man and and oh my goodness it just right. we, need fight with cash. we need fight with cash lee to go after facebook but does give send go know this I don't know if they do or not. Okay. But Cynthia, you're right. I mean, I'll talk to Cash. We can use patriotfreedomproject.com. Check out patriotfreedomproject.com. You know, I, I don't know if you guys have had conversations with uh, the fight with Cash guys, but definitely let's make sure we have everyone on this. So look, we have about uh, a little less than a minute left. I just want to thank um, the four of you. Thank you, Ed, but especially thank you to Cynthia, Cynthia, Jerry, and Angela.
for talking about your families, talking about your boys. God bless them all. And um, they're, they think that they're dealing with insects, that they can crush us and treat us like insects. But we're not. And this is a great country made up of great people, the greatest people in world history. And we're going to get through this, and we're going to get through it together. And um, I just want to thank you all for being here. And um, thank you. And uh, please, if you're out there watching, please help. Uh, please help these three families. Please help other families. And um, and and God bless your family too. Understand this is what they're doing. They're going after families. So. Take care of your family, protect your family, protect your loved ones, protect America. God bless you. Uh, reach out and take care of each other. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll be back next week um, at 11 a.m. again, Friday, for Over the Target. And uh, please share this with, with friends and family, people who need to see this. They need to understand what's happening. And again, in the meantime, thanks to the four of you. God bless you. Thank you. Appreciate you, you for having me. All right, see you soon. I think it's entirely unprecedented. Totally unprecedented. It's never happened before. We've never seen anything like this. It's unprecedented. Because it's never happened in American history, and it shouldn't have happened. And this brings up a larger question because we're in a revolutionary cycle. This is the modern day version of Watergate. To me, it makes Watergate look rather small by comparison. So the whole idea that Biden doesn't know anything is preposterous. It's just not true. Their number one goal, and it has been this way since day one, is to stop Donald J. Trump from being president of the United States. It's political showmanship. I'm not worried about any of it. Donald Trump didn't commit a crime. This is a, a corrupt politicization of law enforcement in our country. The greatest threat to the United States of America is denial. This is the defining moment of the entire Biden presidency. They know it. They're definitely targeting uh, President Trump because they don't want to run for president again. It's, it's that simple. How we act right now will be discussed for generations to come. We cannot deny what is happening to our justice system.